Hello, peoples, and welcome to the very first episode of our brand new podcast, Esoterica Cinema. Now, you're probably asking yourself a very reasonable question, which is, what is Esoterica Cinema? Well, what it is, is it's a film discussion podcast. Um, And what I want to do is I want to distinguish this from a film review podcast and let everyone know that we're going to be looking very closely at the films that we discuss. And we're going to be looking at certain filmmaking decisions, certain screenwriting decisions, acting decisions. We're going to be discussing character arcs, a lot of things like that. So needless to say, there's going to be some spoilers in this podcast. So if you haven't seen the films and you want to have seen them before you listen to our podcast, we do recommend go ahead and check those out. Everything that we discuss on here is going to be readily available online. So, you know, you can just punch in something on Google, Letterboxd, Amazon, whatever it is that you use to find films. All of these films will be streaming in some capacity. Um, So we're not going to pick anything that's super obscure that you have to go buy some Region 2 DVD on eBay or something like that. Um, So, yeah, but uh, we are going to be looking closely at those films. Again, it's a film discussion podcast, not strictly a film review podcast. So hopefully you guys like what we have in store for you. My name is Jason Peters, and with me today is my co-host Ryan Siebold. Ryan, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about the movies we're going to look at today, right? What's up, Jason? Thanks for having me on the podcast today. Yeah, uh, all the way from Tampa, Florida, I'm chiming in, and uh, we got some good ones. Um, One I have never seen, and one I've seen uh, several times, but not in a long time, which, uh, you know, that's always good to revisit, especially from this standpoint to kind of break it down and take notes. It was a fun one. Uh, Our two movies this week uh, are Aguirre, The Wrath of God, from 1972, directed by Werner Herzog and starring Klaus Kinski. Uh, we are also moving forward to Adaptation from 2002, directed by Spike Jones, starring Nick Cage, Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper. I mean, it's a, a litany of folks in that one doing an amazing job. And we'll get into that uh, in just a bit. But first, we're going to start with Aguirre, The Wrath of God, again, directed in 1972 by Werner Herzog, starring Klaus Kinski. Uh, this movie's the first Werner Herzog uh, uh, of his legendary team ups with Klaus Kinski. Uh, it's a feverish account of 16th century Spanish conquistador uh, played by uh, Klaus Kinski, Aguirre, uh, in his obsessive quest through the South American rainforest to discover the fabled city of gold, El Dorado, a crazed delusion that leads him and his band of explorers into the heart of darkness. Kinski's unhinged performance, the myth, uh, mystical score by Popol Vuh, which we're going to talk about, that's it's something all its own, and the lush hallucinatory jungle images come together in one of the most haunting, deliriously inspired visions in all of 1970s cinema. I couldn't agree with that more. This is a descent into madness, and I loved it. Jason, what'd you think, buddy? <laughs> Absolutely, man. You're spot on. Just real quick in case, uh, just so we can avoid any potential legal things like that, that was a description from the Criterion website. Good job to the copywriters over at Criterion on that description. And good job reading it, buddy. I was captivated. Hey, thanks. <laughs> I've been practicing my reading. All right. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk about this movie. Real quick, let me tell, tell you what you guys are in store for. This program is going to have three different segments. The first segment, we're going to look closely at one film. The second segment, we're going to look at another film. And then from there, we're going to finish off with what hopefully is a unique segment for you guys we're actually going to do a compare and contrast feature. So over the course of this program, we're actually going to be selecting what hopefully are very different films to review within the same episode. And the reason that we're doing this is because we want to take a look at these films and see if there's any sort of connections that maybe we can make 
that just, you know, wouldn't have otherwise really been discussed. You know, I don't think that there's too many people out there that are, you know, discussing Aguirre and how he compares to Charlie Kaufman's character in Adaptation. So we thought that would make for an interesting conversation. We hope that you guys do as well. Ryan, before we get into Aguirre, uh, I do actually have a clip from the trailer that I want to play for everyone. So just to let you guys know, the film itself is in German uh, with English subtitles. I believe there is an English language version. I don't recommend it. I recommend you watch the original in German with the subtitles. Obviously not having subtitles on a podcast. Assuming most of you like us don't speak German, we decided to go with the English language trailer here. So this is actually edited down from the original trailer. We're just going to play a quick clip so you get kind of a sense of the film. Maybe it's been a while since you've seen it, or maybe you haven't, but you want to hang around with us anyway. Here's a clip from Aguirre. Towards the end of the year 1560, following the conquest of Peru, a few Spanish adventurers undertake the boldest mission of their lives. With 1,100 men, two women, captive Indians, and animals, they descend from the Andes down into the steaming primeval forests where the waters of the Amazon begin, in quest of El Dorado, the fabled city of gold. But the forest swallows them up. Its secret is preserved. Aguirre, I know exactly what you intend to do to Ursua. Every last detail. And God will punish you for it. Ryan, that was uh that was a, that was pretty wow. pretty good representation, right? I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, as you were setting the the trailer up, uh, I couldn't help but chuckle to myself a little bit about it being a German movie about a Spanish conquistador that takes place in Peru with English subtitles that you found a dubbed version of. <laughs> <laughs> like, holy That's crap! Hilarious. What a melting pot this is. Yeah, so, but I think per- that actually for is the greatest. Man. That's the greatest uh, metaphor I could think of for this movie because this movie is just a mixed up, jumbled up pile of tricks. Yeah, it is. So, so uh, you know, go ahead. Well, yeah, man, let's get into it. So um, just to kind of start us off, I think that uh, it, it's got a really interesting opening. I think that Herzog really kind of sets us up for what we're in store for. Um, you know, he's not trying to play tricks, kind of wants to let you know right up front. So we get this awesome opening scene um, where it's just this giant wide shot of this huge mountain and, you know, with the whole caravan of people just marching downfield that are from this expedition that's going Hundreds on. of people. Hundreds of people. Literally, uh, I was actually listening to a commentary track um, on a DVD that I got. 450 people are, are approximate that group what? of people. Yeah, what? dude, it's insane. Like, and, and all 450 people. Those are the... He hired like all like those are all like native Peruvians that he hired. I was going to ask. Right those there. are the, the. OK. Wow. Yeah. yeah so. Jeez. Yeah. So, you know, obviously impressive in the scope of the film. Also, you know, impressive from a technical standpoint. Um, you know, he only uh, I found out that he made this movie for three hundred and seventy thousand dollars. 
Uh, which, yeah, I mean, when you factor in the transportation budget alone for all of the equipment, you know, that's before he's hired those, uh, the native Peruvians, which, you know, I'm sure he got at a discount given exchange rates, but still, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like that's how that works. Um, they'll do it. When you order them by the hundred, you get them at a discount. Yeah. There's a bulk rate for for native Peruvians apparently. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't have worked on this film for all the money in the world like this looked like the biggest pain in the dick to go shoot this in the Peruvian I don't know where the closest town was or like where they got craft services from but um, I very much saw the the descent into madness to be a metaphor for what Herzog probably went like he kind of was a gear embodiment you know in a way just I, I don't know I would have been went uh, went crazy making this movie in Peru it did not look like a fun time yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think the I think the good thing about Herzog is is it's kind of hard to go crazy when you already are crazy. That's um, fair. So you know, uh, I mean, he was twenty eight at the time, um, and so you know, I think just probably you know the benefits of of just youth and probably didn't even stop to consider a lot of the challenges that he would ultimately encounter. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, but at the same time, if there's any filmmaker out there that's going to be down for that, it's going to be Werner Herzog. So. Um, so this this scene opens up and it's a sweeping lo- uh, long pan of the this ravine, more or less, with this switchback trail that's uh, going down into the ravine and back up again, kind of going around it. Um, and there's these hundreds of native Peruvians that are uh, helping this ragtag group of uh, Spanish conquistadors navigate the jungle. They're deep in the Amazon rainforest at this point, and they're carrying way too much shit down this mountain, if you ask me. They have come way over <laughs> They've got, like, cannons, and they've got uh, all kinds of, like, chariots, and um, I don't know, man. It looked like a, a trek. And I'm thinking, like, as I'm watching this, uh, first off, I'm thinking, I don't see a safety harness in the bunch, and definitely people died in that room. Most <laughs> assuredly. No way. Yes. There is no way someone didn't die. Like, I guess this is before lawsuits. There were no animal trainers. There were no studio right. trainers. Like, yeah, no. So did yeah? Did Werner? Her, did Herzog just go to the only part of uh, the world that didn't have lawsuits or lawyers or something? Like, they're like, yeah, we can get away with all kinds of stuff. Because Germany definitely has mountains, and yeah. they could have filmed this in Germany and like doubled it for the rainforest. I guess I don't know. <laughs> well, see, and that to me, I think that so I've long held this about Werner Herzog. So I think that a large part of what he does is like I'm convinced that this is a guy that just loves to go out there and live and do these really crazy things, like just for the sake of doing them. And I've long con- I've long been convinced that he like reverse engineers a lot of his plots to be able to do crazy shit in real life. So like, you know, <laughs> like his other, you know, argu- arguably biggest film is Fitzcarraldo. And Fitzcarraldo is all about a guy who wants to take a steamboat and literally haul it up the top of a mountain so that he can build an opera house out of it. And and I'm convinced that Werner Herzog was just like, you know what? I really want to do this. Like, for whatever reason, <laughs> I want to build a freaking steamboat at the top of a mountain and turn it into an opera house. But I don't have the money or I don't want to spend my money. So if I turn it into a movie, I can get other people to fund my crazy wild expeditions that I want to do and then just right. say it's for a movie. Man, and I think I, I would think of more fun things to do than this. <laughs> if, that, if that's I was I would reverse engineer like way cooler stuff. That, well, that's just me, though. I mean, you know, I think that there's probably a little bit of a Gire in Herzog in terms of his you that's know, desire for, you know, adventure. I guess that was my point. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, yeah, I, I think the, the film kind of metaphors 
or, or as a metaphor for the the film production. I don't know. That's what's what. And so you got this. So uh, back to the point. So we got this switchback trail of. Uh, of native Peruvians and they're carrying all this shit and we're on an adventure. We're embarking into the Amazon rainforest to go look for the uh, fabled city of El Dorado, city of gold. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there's this opening um, haunting music from uh, this German, uh, like, I guess this, uh, I guess they're an electronic pioneer, uh, Popol Vuh. I'm going to massacre the name pronunciation. <laughs> I apologize. But That's how I would say it. Yeah. I guess they did everything like analog. There's obviously 72. They pr it was probably filmed in 71, uh, or seventy, something like that. So uh, you're not you're not dealing with Daft Punk here, uh, busting out the <laughs> digital layers and and working in Logic or whatever they do. So uh, yeah, it, apparently it was just a series of uh, hundreds of ta tape film that they played different uh, notes or or whatnot, and they were able to get this weird uh, choir sounding haunting. I don't know. You just got to listen to it, but it's bananas, and it really sets the tone for what we're about to embark on, and it plays out for several minutes, like it. It lets you know what we're about to do here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's so funny, too, because, like, now that's totally something that, like, a seven-year-old could do on their Apple with just, like, pushing one button. Like, <laughs> So it's super right. funny to hear that, like, back in the day it was, like, this huge, giant production. Because it's not like a – I mean, the, the melodies aren't complex or anything. It's mostly just kind of, like, ambient tones, really, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. um, right. So, yeah, so – but yeah, that's super interesting. No, it kind of reminded me of like a Icelandic, like a Sigur Ross feel or something. But uh, yes. yeah, just kind of a little haunting. Um, maybe some weird ethereal Radiohead uh, B-side or something. But uh, that's kind of where it left me. But yeah. So, yeah, so um, let's talk about Aguirre himself for a minute here. So I think that, sure, uh, sure. you know, obviously Klaus Kinski is a very unique performer. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into some of the specifics regarding his character a little bit, but I do think that it's interesting the way that they more or less introduce him right off the bat, because the first lines of dialogue that he gets is when they're at the rapids and he's talking with, uh, Pizarro, who is, um, the leader of this expedition. And, you know, basically he says, these rapids are too violent. We're not going to be able to cross this. And Aguirre questions him. You know, so right off the bat, the very first lines of dialogue that we hear out of Aguirre's mouth is him questioning his leadership. And this is obviously going to be a theme that we see throughout the course of this film, but it does a good job. Uh, you know, Herzog's not really one to slow reveal, at least in this film. Uh, I think, it, you know, he very quickly, abruptly, right off the bat, kind of says this is the type of film it is. These are the types of characters these guys are. Um, we're not going to get a lot of, you know, growth. You know, there's not going to be huge character arcs where people are going to really ultimately change. I think they're just going to become more themselves, uh, specifically with the Aguirre character. Um, right. And so, you know, and, and we also see a lot of Herzog's kind of commentary on society. So the way that he introduces uh, Guzman, who is the representative of the throne, for example, like he literally introduces him. He's this huge, big, slobbish, oafish guy, you know, with his gut hanging over his belt. And he's sitting on this cannon. That's their only real weapon that they have aside from a handful of guns. And he's just like spread eagle, like man spread, like man spreading type thing. Uh, and just munching on like a chicken wing or something like that while every, while Pizarro and everyone else is actually like trying to strategize. And again, I think that's a theme that we're going to see come up this this sort of poking fun of and, you know, almost, uh, you know, negative commentary on authority figures and representatives of the throne. Um, you know, yeah, Herzog like, doesn't mince words here. He doesn't really set up anything vague. Everything is what it is. All the characters kind of let you know who they are and what 
Herzog's statement on that level from society, I guess, would be or that it's very much a, a statement on class, wealth, uh, authoritarianism, uh, military. Um, and it's a madman, uh, Aguirre, who eventually mutinies, takes control, was not prepared for that control and gets everyone killed. So um, that's kind of the the nuts and bolts of our story. It's uh, and then in the process, uh, we see a. A slow descent, you know, again, I keep saying this, but a slow descent into madness and uh, and, and losing everyone's sanity. And we kind of see why, how that transpires, but that's basically the nuts and bolts of it. So this first dialogue scene you're talking about where he is challenging authority, this is their first, um, you know, they're, they're, they're traipsing through the jungle. They get to their first little hurdle. They get to this uh, rushing river and they, they can't go across it. It's too nuts. So they got to go down it. So they build some rafts and they start sailing down the way. And uh, at this point, right, this is, it, this is where um, they break off into groups. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the uh, Pizarro basically names Ursua the leader of this new expedition to go see about uh, navigating the rapids and basically gives right. him a week to, to see, you know, what they he can He makes do. his number two, like the head of this little bee camp or whatever, and they start trekking down the river to go because there was too many of them to all make it down the river yes uh this also gets us down to our core group our our band of merry misfits that we're pretty much with the rest of the film uh it also probably saved Werner herzog a boatload of money because he's like okay the rest of you guys can go home now <laughs> thanks for the opening sequence 450 people we're down to our uh, you know core 40 now and i don't have to feed you all yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely. One. So, another interesting thing I think that is that um, you know, very early on, kind of like you're talking about the descent into madness, dovetailing into that. Uh, this is a story about obsession. I think really ultimately at its goal, yeah, and Aguirre's obsession with his goal, and also just the nature of this type of person who is willing to stop at nothing in pursuit of that obsession and in pursuit of that goal. I mean, Aguirre is not somebody who cares about his men. At all. And he's no. you know, and he's very much contrasted by the Ursua character who does care about the men. So one of the one of the earlier things that we see and one of the earlier scenes that expresses this is uh, when the raft gets stuck on the eddy. So I think they start off three or four rafts deep. They're floating down river. Everything's cool. One of them gets stuck in an eddy and they, and they get stuck in like, which for those who don't know is like uh, sort of a little mini rapid that's self-contained that when you get stuck in, it's kind of like a whirlpool sort of thing where you can't get out. And so Ursua and Aguirre are talking and Ursua wants to go save them. And Aguirre is like, what are you talking about? Those guys, uh, there's no saving them. They're dead. Like, doesn't even consider a scenario where they could save them, right? Like, just right off the bat, like, nope, nope, that's a waste of time. They're dead. Let's move on. Let's keep going. We got bigger and better things to worry about, right? <laughs> yeah, but to, to that end, Jason, to that end, I could see Werner Herzog saying the same thing. About, <laughs> if his crew was stuck on that raft. And then his DP was like, we, I got to go get my guys over there. And he's like, no, they are dead. And then that'd be the end of it. <laughs> I could totally see that. That. He'd probably admit to as much as well. He'd be like, of course, I have a movie yeah. to shoot. What do I care about these people? Yes. <laughs> to try to save them would be futile. I don't know. I have a, I have a terrible... If you want to hear a good... If you want to hear a great Werner Herzog impression, go listen to Paul F. Tompkins. Do not listen to me. Uh, he does it perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, I'll try. I'll try to hammer this one out. We walked through the forest, and see, I can't do it either. So now we're on equal terms, buddy. We both suck at Werner yeah. Herzog accents. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna out Werner Werner. No, so no. Uh, yeah, so we get down to our little, uh, uh, you know, our core group, and they start to see challenges as they go along. We start to see people kind of whittled down, and we also see an exchange of power and a little uh, yes. power play that goes on. 
And uh, this kind of leads us over time to Aguirre uh, kind of creating a coup, more or less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. He basically, uh, and it's I actually, it's really funny the way that it starts out because his first sort of like middle finger to Ursua is when he does like that thing with the cannon after the Eddie. So the the Eddie ends up like they die because they're attacked by some some native Peruvians is what we're led to believe. Um, uh, and then uh, so. Aguirre's like sitting there brooding over this after the fact and he's got this like guy named ultimately Perucho uh but I call him, I like to call him cannon guy because he's just sitting there by this cannon and Aguirre like just sort of walks <laughs> over right and he's like uh and it's this sort of like like I don't know like this mob boss approach or something and he's like hey uh it's a nice cannon you got there can't help but notice it's pointed right at that uh raft over there in that eddy that they disobeyed me on Sure would be a shame if it went off and, uh, you know, taught them a lesson or something like that. And it just kind of walks away. And then Perucho with his, like, side eyes just, like, kind of, I don't know, he's, like, pretending to clean it or something. And then, bam, it goes off. And he's just like, dude, like, they could have used those those resources. I'm sure they had, you know, food and clothing and whatever they need on, you know, it was a raft with supplies. And just to prove his point, he's like, yeah, yeah, just go ahead and blow it up. Yeah, I mean, he is a he's a very much a, a cut off your nose to spite your face kind of guy. Like, he he just he says fuck it so many times in this movie and just blows shit up or kills people or ruins resources. Like, I dare say, you know, he's the only reason they died. Like, he led their team to madness because of his obsession. But yeah, uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought up this Perucho guy because uh, I wrote down in my notes here, everyone in this movie looks like someone else and. <laughs> I swear to God, uh, this guy uh, is played by Daniel uh, Daniel Aids, I guess, or something. A- Addis, uh, I'm massacring names here, uh, but I swear, <laughs> dude, go look up, go look up photos of this guy from when he was younger. He looks just like Christoph Waltz. Dude, um, he so does. It's crazy. <laughs> I was, yeah. I mean, I sent you pictures while we were watching it, yeah. and uh, I was like, "This is Christoph Waltz, right?" Like, I'm not kidding. And uh, <laughs> yeah, um, our our uh, Ursua looks like. Uh, uh, Inigo Montoya from Princess Bride, <laughs> our uh, our nobleman uh, Guzman. Uh, I don't know, man. Everybody yeah. looks like someone from the. I'm like watching this whole thing. I'm like, man, this is not German at all, <laughs> with exception of '84. And I know all these people. I think you need. I think the one exception can be made is Klaus Kinski because nobody looks like Klaus Kinski. He's the only one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um. So yeah, dude. So uh, I think that it's about this point. Um. You know, very shortly after that uh the you know mutiny and resistance that you speak of uh really starts to be played up you know we get the sense that Aguirre is is basically like making moves to set up some sort of you know power play um and we see that in the you know the following scene after uh so later on there's like uh it turns out that the river had risen which just took away all their rafts and so obviously they need some new ones but rather than wait for the order from Ursua uh, Aguirre just gives the orders to the men and Ursua's walking around and he sees all these people building rafts and he's like, what's going on? You know, who gave you these orders? And they're all just like, uh, 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 and they like look to the ground and then like, you know, he looks over and there's Aguirre just standing by the water just with this like smug ass look on his face and he just kind of slowly <laughs> turns around right. and walks away. And that actually brings up a good point too, which is, the body language that Klaus Kinski employs throughout this movie for Aguirre was insane. Like, just 
like he's got this like weird hunched over thing and he's like slinking around and he's he has this sloop super slow gait that he walks with but at the same time like you almost get the sense he's, that his body's he's leaning coiled back on his sword. like a like he's like almost like a coiled snake ready to just charge and yeah. explode at any moment but also so like i think it's i think serpentine's almost a good word to describe the way that he portrays him it's 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 really sure. unique i haven't really seen body language expressed quite like that before right yeah i don't know how he prepared for this film or or what but uh yeah he was he was back he was kind of like leaning on his sword kind of like he definitely was pushing his chest out most of the time and kind of uh his spine was all i don't know you're absolutely right it's very serpentine like um very sure of himself uh arrogant with like a weird you know look on his face i don't know it was hard to describe but i definitely get it i was that was a authentic performance, no doubt about it. I couldn't have given that performance. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also think that that uh, you know, in addition to Klaus Kinski doing some really interesting things, there's some really interesting things that Werner Herzog does. So one of the scenes that kind of stood out, and it was almost kind of just tacked in there a little bit. Um, and this is something Herzog kind of does that we can talk about in a little bit. But just uh, the scene where he, after he kind of successfully. Uh, so he ends up, he does end up staging the mutiny against Ursua. So um, basically, like, once, I think it's after the rafts start being built, Ursua's like, oh, okay, so you're going to play that game with me, huh? And so he orders an immediate retreat out of the jungle, just like, all right, man, pack it up. Like, we're, we're taking our shit and we're getting out of here, you know? Um, and uh, and then, so because, so when that happens, is basically like, oh, hell no, right? And so then he puts on like his big sort of speech and appeal to the men and, you know, we can't retreat. You know, we've got to be brave. We've got to be strong. Remember what Hernando, Hernando Cortez did to take over Mexico. You know, we can be as great and as powerful and blah, blah, blah. And Ursula's is like, have this man, you know, chained and arrested or whatever. And then Cannon Guy, a.k.a. Christoph Waltz, a.k.a. Perucho, actually shoots him <laughs> in the shoulder. Uh, and then at that point, Aguirre has him taken captive, makes Cannon Guy number two, um, who, you know, I don't even think he had a rank or anything before this. I think he's just willing to do Aguirre's bidding. And so he's like kicking him a bone. Right. Um, so, you know, then basically the mutiny is set. Um, we've got like a really interesting scene, you know, kind of, uh, where the, so Ursua has this mistress that's come along with him the whole time. And after this scene, she goes to the monk Gaspar, who we haven't really seen too much of. And there's a brief little scene on the beach where um, she basically pleads with him for help, you know, says how Ursula was wronged, etc., etc. And his response is very telling. He says that, historically speaking, the church has always sided with the strong. And so he is going to, you know, remain allegiant to Aguirre um, because, you know, he sees him as being ultimately the one that's going to lead them to the, to the lost city of El Dorado. And again, you know, kind of dovetailing from, you know, the indictments of the authority figures that we had seen earlier and through the Guzman character, I think that we see um, a lot of indictment in the Gaspar character. And so, you know, there's scenes later that kind of echo the same sentiment, um, but basically ultimately saying that, you know, the whether you agree with this or not, his statement is that, you know, the church doesn't, you know, uh, necessarily represent what they speak. Um, you know, they say one thing and they do another and again, I think we see that theme reinforced later in the film as well. Right. Yeah, he makes a lot of statements uh, like that throughout the film, whether it's uh, kind of through character choices or actual dialogue or whatever. But uh, again, to kind of reiterate what I said earlier, uh, he doesn't mince words. He doesn't 
you know, beat around the bush. He's pretty direct on how he feels about religion, about government, about authority, um, and uh, that all, all the different uh, classes of society, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we, again, we, we start off with this big giant cast of people and then we cut down to the, our little B crew that we go down the river with. Then there's this power struggle that leaves us, uh, uh with Aguirre leading the charge and everyone kind of re, uh, falling in line under him. He puts, uh, Guzman as the, uh, figurehead in charge as the statesman, the nobleman, uh, descendant from royalty, whatever he was. And so he acts as more or less a figurehead. You got the monk. Um, who is, uh, you know, cited on Aguirre. And, uh, and they, isn't this where they try uh, Ursua as well? And they just kind of, like, put him in chains. And, and uh, he ends up getting shot in the arm. And they put him in chains and, and uh, get, get rid of him. Yeah. Uh, most of the rest of the film. They bring him with them for now. But, uh, yeah. So then we're back on. They build their rafts. And we get back on the river. And uh, we start moving on. Yeah, yeah, we do. So, um, so let's talk a little bit for a minute about some of the filmmaking choices that Herzog employs. Um, sure. I thought there was a, you know, with regards to, like we said, you know, this isn't a subtle film, and I think that he uses juxtaposition really interestingly, um, and I think that you know, there's a lot of sort of sudden moments, sudden cuts, things like that. So I thought it was really interesting the way that, um, you know, the opening five six minutes, however long of that Popol Vuh soundtrack, um, it's actually interrupted by a cannon that shoots off and when that cannon goes off you know the, the music cuts out and immediately we go to more a- ambient atmospheric uh, sounds so we get a lot more jungle sounds we get birds uh, we get different animals and there was actually a really cool moment where um later on when they're at a beach uh the mistress who of Ursu after you know he's taken over and all this stuff has happened uh she accuses Aguirre of basically planning further treachery and like Herzog right at that moment has this little rattlesnake sound effect that goes off in the background. Wow. And, I didn't yeah. even catch, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then there's also like that bird sound. Like I, it's like, I don't know. It's weird. I don't know what sound it is, but it kind of goes like, it's like, you just hear this all the time. Like, and like, and, and that 90 song. Yes. Song two, bro. That's right. Rock on Blur. Bernard Herzog um, wrote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if that was a Blur's inspiration for that. Like, they were just strolling Could through be. the jungle. They heard that, and they, they were, were like, just that bird fans. is a magnificent songwriter. We yeah, must go back immediately. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, this bird into a song? <laughs> yeah. Um, dude, let's talk about the horse for a minute, okay? So, like, I don't even know what the hell the point of this horse was. They've got this horse on this raft the whole time, and I think maybe yeah. it's just supposed to be sort of like an ostentatious display thing, but it ends up, like, causing a lot of trouble. There's a scene where – there's kind of an interesting scene uh, earlier where, like, the horse panics and he accidentally sets a barrel of gunpowder on fire, and everyone else, yeah. like, scatters, and they're super scared, and like, oh, my God, blah, blah, blah. And, like, Aguirre just sort of casually strolls over and picks it up and just chucks it into the water where it explodes, right? Um, so, which, you know, is kind of on brand for him. I mean, it makes sense. And again, we do get the juxtaposition of him as a person of strength. But then immediately, uh, there's like a, uh, there's one of the members of the expedition gets shot in the neck with an arrow. It's, it's not even an arrow. It's super small. It's really more like a dart size. Um, and, you know, we see Gaspar the monk who's like all casual and calm and he strolls over and he's like, huh, I wonder what this is. 
And then Aguirre just like, once he sees that, like he explodes and he's like, what is everyone doing? Attack! Grab your guns! Fire into the jungle! Blah, blah, blah! Just scare them! We don't know where they're coming from, but just fire! And like, so it was really interesting to see in like, you know, that first moment where everyone's panicking and he just kind of is really calm and in control. Um, but, you know, this next scene, all of a sudden he just completely flips out where everyone else is calm. And I think it's because probably, maybe because he doesn't, it's, you know, he's not familiar with it. I don't want to say, you know, it's technology that he doesn't know because it's not technology at all. But, like, it's so old school or he's just not familiar with what's going on. And so it's that unknown that ultimately scares him because there's not too much that scares him. But he's very clearly scared in that moment. Yeah, they're all kind of sketched out about whatever's hiding in the... Because we never really see what... That's kind of... Werner Herzog keeps that from the viewer. Maybe it's for budgetary reasons. But he never really reveals to us what's in the rainforest that is picking these guys off one by one with little darts or arrows or spears or what have you. I mean, obviously it's natives, but but uh, I think that, um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that his, um, it, it challenges his ego, I think maybe a little bit because it is unknown and he doesn't have an answer for it. So it's just like, shoot it, kill it, kill it fast. Yeah. <laughs> it's also uh, this time too that Werner uh, starts to dribble out little bits of humor uh, that seem very kind of, or like early Woody Allen to me, or or uh, I don't know, it's kind of slapsticky because like the little dart comes out, the can uh, that the the horse flips out, the the scene plays out just like you said it does, and then the the arrow, the dart, uh, excuse me, comes out of the jungle and it's a poison dart, it hits a guy in the neck, and uh, one of the cast of Barry Merry Men here that he's with uh, proposes that it's a very small uh, arrow and that the the natives must be very very short to be using <laughs> such small bows and arrows and they the way it's delivered i'm not a right yeah right so i thought that that was funny also uh it's a little bit further down the way when uh when they i'm sure you're going to bring this up i'm jumping ahead but they're going they're they encounter another um uh, group of natives uh peruvians whatever in the rainforest and they sail out to them this priest and uh his uh partner in crime and uh they they try to train him win him over with the bible and and they say that this this book speaks the word of god and the priest holds it up to his ear and he says i don't hear anything and (laughs) again plays out very woody Uh, allen-esque really appreciated that but it was just so off-brand for the film like the film doesn't it's so serious and and kind of uh, monotone but uh, there's these little moments of humor that i really picked up on and appreciated Definitely, definitely. And yeah, that actually is the next scene that I wanted to bring up. So that um, that bridges nicely to that, which is, first of all, it's a great shot, right? Because um, by now we sort of start to realize that, you know, the native Peruvians are going to be a threat to them. Um, I, I think the I think what's interesting about the movie is a lot of movies would sort of announce that, you know, in the first act, like, ah, beware of the native Peruvians out there. And so then we're like, oh, OK, we've got to be scared. And so then when he's floating down the river, like, you know, right off the bat, we're going to be scared. But Herzog doesn't tell us that right away. And so, you know, those first sort of earlier shots of them floating down the river, you're just sort of kind of appreciating the, you know, just lolling slowly. And um, you're not thinking about the different, you know, natives and threats that exist out there. And he lets that come about organically right. over the course of the film. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting way to handle that. It showed a lot of respect for the audience. Either way, so this shot... Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I mean. Like, I, I feel like some of the, the things that happen to these guys, uh, they're as unknown to the viewer as they are to the cast or to the crew, you know? Mm-hmm. So when someone's getting picked off or someone's coming down the river, we never know if they're friend or foe or what's going to come around any turn. Uh, Herzog does a 
great job of keeping you guessing throughout this film. You never really know when they're in danger or not. You know, some sometimes they're going in uh, to like a little uh, inlet or something on a little canoe. Um, like when they eventually go to off Ursua and hang them from the flimsiest little branch <laughs> in the freaking rainforest. Yes, that was a slow Such hang. a that half-assed attempt at hanging somebody. I felt really bad for that guy. <laughs> but uh, same thing, though. Like, I thought for sure they were going to get picked off in there. But no. So you never really know uh, when these guys are in danger or not. And this scene is no different. So I'll let you carry on talking about it. Yeah, so we get this great shot where, um, you know, we all of a sudden we're floating down the river and we see these... N- well, we assume them to be natives. We don't know right off the bat. They obviously do end up being natives. But we see them swimming upstream, actually paddling upstream in a canoe. And it's a really sort of a resting moment because at this point, like, there's nobody else out here. Or there's not supposed to be. The only people that would be out here are the natives that have been attacking them. So, you know, but they're so slowly and confidently paddling up to them. So it's like, you're like, what's going on? You know, are there others out there? And they're just a decoy. It ends up being pretty straightforward. So the two show up, uh, they paddle out to the raft, um, and we also get a cool little, you know, the shot itself. We get, like, just barely in the bottom right of the frame, we get the corner of the raft, and it looks really cool just the way he holds on that shot. But either way, the canoe approaches. They end up boarding, um, and, yeah, they are... uh, The natives actually had swam out to them because they reference a legend of theirs that tells of the, quote, son of sons who will bring thunder from sticks. So basically when they were firing off randomly into the jungle, um, you know, that was like the legend of this son of sons has come. And so they're swimming out to meet him. Um, and, uh, there's also a little funny moment where, uh, you know, they, the, you know, they're talking, they being the expedition is talking to the natives and they're asking what lies downstream. And, uh, the guy just simply, uh, responds. He says, uh, we don't know downstream. God never finished his creation from this point forward. And for me, that was kind of like Herzog's like, oh, that road, you don't want to go down that road moment. Right. Like the old man (laughs) in the Stephen King one who is like, ah, beware. You don't, there's untold dangers over there. Like, so they just gave it to like this native and then, yeah. And then there's this whole, like, you know, almost comedic misunderstanding where, like you say, you know, they give them, the monk says, I'm here to tell you the word of God. The holds up the Bible, says, you know, the word of God is contained within this. And then, yeah, the native grabs it and holds it to his ear and says it doesn't speak. And it would be like, <laughs> except for they immediately grab him and pin him to the ground and hold a sword to his neck for perceived blasphemy. And it's just like. There's such an obvious, innocent misunderstanding, and these people came out to him willingly, and they did not attack him or anything. And so it just goes to show, again, the cruelty with which all these people are talking. And then once they have him pinned down, they see the gold on his neck, and, you know, they're like, where did you get this? And he, like, points downstream, and so they're like, oh, okay, El Dorado's there, right? So they he confirms, but... The monk still is basically like, well, thanks for uh, thanks for the tip on El Dorado, but, uh, you know, you still blasphemed. So, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and cut his head off. Move along here. It's like you're, the monk's just as like he may not do the actions, but like he definitely signs off on everything that Aguirre does and has no problem with right. it. And again, you know, very much a statement of indictment from Mr. Herzog. Yeah, this this crew is doomed from the start, and uh, they were they're all in. The, as soon as they turn, uh, I I believe that if Ursua had continued to lead them, uh, number one, it's kind of told a, a, in the opening credits or or the little title blurb that uh, the placard or whatever that plays over uh, the opening scene that El Dorado is a f- fictional city, anyways that the natives yeah. created 
to try to distract uh, the conquistadors that were coming in and messing things up for them. So they were like, they kind of made it up to get rid of them. Mm. And so they were never going to find this thing. Let's go ahead and start there. And then, <laughs> but also I think Ursua would have at least got them back safe because in the, that was like the, the, the power struggle that ended with the coup is that, that Aguirre came through. Right. It's like Ursua wanted to go back. He's like, all right, you know, I think I've had about enough. Let's turn around. And Aguirre said, F that. And he, Shot this man, ended up hanging him down the down the line, and when he was through taking care of him, and uh, so yeah, I think that Aguirre and this this whole crew that was in on it, uh, they they signed and sealed their own fate uh, right from the start. So you never really, and that's the other thing too. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I never felt any pathos for any of these people because of that. As we go down, everyone just got what they got, and as people died or uh, you know started to deal with their own uh, their own uh, aftermath or, or whatever, their own shortcomings or whatnot, uh, comeuppance, that, uh, yeah, you never really felt bad for any of these people, yeah? Yeah, no, I think uh, probably the only sympathetic character would be, like, the slave character. Um, you know, he gets a little monologue about wanting to be free, and, you know, they, sure. they like— send him ahead of, you know, the rest of the expeditions because of, you know, the supernatural views of the Peruvians. And he's basically just manipulated and he does it. But, you know, like he, you don't get the sense that he relishes in it at all. Like, I mean, he's just like, yeah, dude, I'm a slave. I have to do what these guys say. That is what it is. It's 1560, you know. Um, so I think he's probably the only sympathetic character in the in in the movie yeah everyone else as well is as in maybe for gold and riches and fame and he's in it for freedom yeah and, uh, and then so for that it would also be a monologue i get it you also you also have to say ursua because ursua really does care about the men and eventually he just like takes that vow of silence where he's like you know what f you all you suck like i'm not here to defend myself or anyone like this guy sucks you all know what he's doing you're you're pretending like you don't like whatever yeah but you and guys. he cuts like, back I'm to out. ursua after after that that power, so you get introduced to Ursu at the beginning, and then he takes charge and he deals with some shit, and pretty quickly he's done away with by uh, Aguirre. And yeah. uh, from the time that he takes his vow of silence, and they decide not to kill him at this point, uh, and they take him with him downstream. This is you know kind of Act Two ish, mm-hmm. beginning of Act Two. Uh, from there on out, he's. Um, He's the bring out your dead character from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where they just check in for, with him from time to time, and he's like, "I'm not dead yet." <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> that's it. It's kind of this pitiful little Monty Python character. Oh, dude, that's funny. Yeah, it's just a flesh wound. <laughs> so you know, we're pretty much getting closer to the end here. Um, you know, the the food's pretty much gone. So we get that scene where, um, you know, the men are all sort of starving. There's not that much food. Um, you know, people are kind of starting to go a little bit delirious, but Guzman still gets this like giant fat spread of like all the meat and stuff that they have. But, uh, and as everyone else is starving, he has the gall to complain about there being no salt. And they're like, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, they're literally counting corn kernels. Yeah. And he's, you know, this need, this fish needs more salt. Give me more water. And they're like, just getting us, ladle full of water out of the river <laughs> putting it in his goblet so he feels like he's being serviced and uh and meanwhile the men are not obviously not very pleased again another statement probably on wealth and class from herzog sure. not mincing words or pulling punches um yeah and, and then that's uh, the point where they know, uh kick the horse off man and uh yeah, i mean that was just dude. that was a uh, that was that was a little bit of a of a soul destroyer there this is that horse scene was <laughs> 
perhaps the saddest scene I've seen since the first 10 minutes of Up. Like, this was so sad. Watching that horse get kicked off. He was their homie, man, and he was in it. and uh, Or she. I don't, I'm not trying to gender bias. But, yeah, so they push this horse off. The horse is, like, freaking out, not having a good time, breaking up the boat. And or their raft, uh, their little makeshift raft, and uh, they get like, we got to get this thing off of here. It's freaking out. So they push it off, and uh, it starts swimming away, and um, yeah, it starts like to come back towards the raft. Like guys, guys, I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> like, can you let me back on? I don't know where I am. This is scary. And they're like, no, get out of here. And they scare him to the shore, which doesn't have much access. It's all you know, rainforest out and, and full of jungle. Uh, in, in vines and stuff, and it finally finds its way. And it, it, it just this long sweeping shot of them sailing past the horse, now on the shore, uh, buried in vines and kudzu and all this jungle. And it's just like looking at them longingly, like, guys, guys, <laughs> where are you going, guys? Not funny, guys. <laughs> you just sail, watch it go off in the distance. And it, I just felt so bad for that horse. Seriously, it's, it's the end of Harry and the Hendersons, except they're not doing it for his own good. <laughs> <laughs> Great call that. I love that reference. That's good stuff. So yeah, so and then right after that moment, um, that's when we get the big, you know, I am the wrath of God, you know, madness is finally set in monologue from uh from Klaus Kinski as a gire, and you know, he assembles the men. There's there's the one guy that discusses defection, and so he just grabs his his machete and he cuts his head off right there. And that's when he turns to all of his men gathered and talks about, you know, if anyone defects, I'm going to cut you into 98 pieces. And if you eat one grain of rice too many, I'm going to jail you for 153 years. And like birds dropping dead from the trees because I tell him so, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I actually have a clip of that one right now. Um, so you'll hear all of what I just said delivered uh, in much uh, greater and more eloquent detail from Mr. Klaus Kinski Azagire. Let's listen. I'm the great traitor. There must be no other. Anyone who even thinks about deserting this mission will be cut up into 98 pieces. Those pieces will be stamped on until what is left can be used only to paint walls. Whoever takes one grain of corn or one drop of water more than his ration will be locked up for 155 years. If I, Aguirre, want the birds to drop dead from the trees, then the birds will drop dead from the trees. I'm the wrath of God. The earth I pass will see me and tremble. All right, once again, just to remind you, the original film is in German, but that is the uh, English version of Klaus Kinski's performance. Um, like I said, Ryan, you know, obviously he's uh, he's he's officially got that. You know, you, you said the film was a descent into madness. He's officially descended. Yep. And, uh, it, you know, it, it kind of wraps up here shortly thereafter. Uh, you start to see his men uh, lost to his poor decision making one by one. Uh, something I, I did want to bring up that we didn't talk about is uh, uh, along with them for the ride are uh, Aguirre's daughter and yes. um, who is it? Uh, Ursua's 
mistress. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they don't have a lot of lines. They don't have a lot of uh, reason to be there. In fact, um, uh, it was even said that it was against uh, the leader's better judgment that they were even allowed on this expedition. I don't know. I, why do you think Werner had them? Like, they didn't have any real lines. They didn't have any real character arcs. Uh, or purpose for being there, other than maybe add just a skosh of femininity, or, or uh, to anchor, you know, the Ursua character, perhaps I guess with his mistress. But as far as Aguirre and and having his daughter there, she didn't. I don't think she had a single line in the entire film. I'm certain she must have been <laughs> German. They brought her all the way over. She tried out for this role. She probably told her parents how excited it was. She's going to Peru. This poor girl was probably dragged all around Peru in the rainforest, <laughs> just giving hell in a handbasket. And then they're she's like, and they're like, and cut. That's it for you. Thanks. And she's like, that's it. And then also to your point of uh, Herzog just kind of getting you, you kind of brought this up earlier, where Herzog um, throughout the film just lets characters just wander off in the jungle, and then that's it. Whether it be uh, the the characters in the on the raft and the eddy, uh, you know. Then also, uh, Ursua's mistress just gets up at one point, says, fuck this, and walks into the jungle. And, like, that's the last we see of her. <laughs> yeah, she totally so, pulls, like, a Mayan civilization where it's just like, yep, just disappeared into the forest, never to return again, or Incans or whoever, yeah. whichever one it was. I, I kind of want to see what, what happens to her. That would have been an interesting little sequel. But, uh, yeah, and, and then the horse, of course. We uh, we lose the horse as well. So, yeah. Um, well, yeah, man. Crazy movie. Crazy movie. Uh, I Let, loved it. Let's touch on one thing real quick, though, because at the end, uh, we do get this scene where, you know, everyone's kind of like sick, hallucinating, etc. Um, and, you know, they they see this tree. And, and I thought it was really interesting imagery. Um, it's just basically this sort of like Pirates of the Caribbean type ship. And it's just sort of wrapped around the top of a tree that's probably like dozens of feet above the river. And, you know, basically, I think that I don't think that ship really exists. You know, I think that Aguirre asks the slave if he sees it and the slave says like, yes, but he also see this arrow in my leg and the arrow's real. So maybe the ship's real. But I think it's kind of just again to to sort of I thought it was again, just the image was really interesting of seeing, you know, a, a, a ship wrapped around the top of a tree dozens of feet in the air. Um, but I do think we're sort of meant to imply that, like, yeah, uh, you know, Aguirre is officially gone insane, like, not just sort of mad, but also, like, you know, hallucinating, like, clinically insane, like, he's on death's doorstep, and, you know, he's gonna die foaming at the mouth kind of thing. Well, two things about that. So, first off, I thought the ship looked exactly like the ship Johnny Depp rides into. That's funny you mentioned Pirates of the Caribbean. I, I thought it would look like exactly like the ship Johnny Depp rides into port with at the very beginning. Oh, of in the Pearl, first one? Or... Where he's on the mast and uh, steps off on the dock and, and pays oh, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, man, okay. the, the dock his ship that's now sunk. His little uh, dinghy or whatever. It looks very similar to that. And I thought that that would be a beautiful tie-in since we're talking about South America and <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean. I would love to see... <laughs> Johnny Depp find that ship somehow, and that's what he took it in a part. <laughs> he made it work. Maybe those are the natives that he was uh, imprisoned with when he has the eyes tattooed on his eyes or whatever, but uh, on his face in the second one in the sequel. But anyway, also, uh, you know, we see this throughout the film where Aguirre has chances to seek out 
redemption or ways to save uh, his crew. He gets help along the way, whether it's from the native priest that has the gold around his neck that says, hey, it's El Dorado's over there. And they're like, yeah, we're not going over there. And there's like, hey, there's a ship up there. And Aguirre again says, no, we're not going up there. They when, Even when they push the horse off the boat, the men say, uh, we could have eaten that. That could have fed us for weeks. Meat, you know, good meat. Yeah. And uh, he's like, no, nah, fuck that horse. <laughs> so uh, we see time and time again where Aguirre just kind of turns his back on uh, any kind of rational means of salvation and, and uh, in, in, in light of his own bravado and I don't know. Yeah. And so then, you know, and, and again, being a tale of obsession, it's ultimately his, you know, he, when this film ends, he is still singularly committed to the idea that he is going to find El Dorado. Like the, the very last scene is he's pretty much hunched over dying. He's chasing around these monkeys that are congregating on the raft. And I think that, you know, maybe those are like the, the, the jungles version of vultures, you know, we're meant to assume that they're going to feed on the bodies. And it's just kind of visual representation of the fact that like, you know, these people are all dying. Um, you know, whether Aguirre is chasing them as a display of power or to try to hang on and save his men because he's delusional. You know, I wasn't 100% sure. It's probably one or the other. Um, but you I would know, love it if he tried to rule those monkeys. And make it <laughs> <laughs> I will create a new army of monkeys that will dominate the world. <laughs> Come on, men. We will find the lost city of El Dorado. <laughs> Decades, centuries before the Wicked Witch of the West would try such things. <laughs> but yeah, so and then, you know, so I mean, the film ends with him just basically, you know, lolling down river and we get these really cool, you know, final shot of Herzog, who's clearly on like a powerboat, um, just kind of encircling the raft. And, you know, just we know that it's really just a matter of hours, days, whatever, before Aguirre dies. But his voiceover, he still continues to talk about how he's going to take over all of these lands and start this dynasty with this pure blood dynasty with his daughter and all this sort of stuff. So like who's again, now dead at this point, I think. right? Yeah, everyone's dead and he's basically dead but he refuses to acknowledge it and i think again that's just a very strong reflection of character so ultimately right. he never has any remorse for any of these people dying he never has any emotional attachment to anybody we're never led to have any real emotional attachment to anybody through agire we kind of see this whole thing through agire's eyes uh or his point of view um as we go down the river and uh and i think really he he almost thinks the that, that his crew exists simply as a means to an end. Like, I, yes. I don't think he has any, you know, connection to them or, or means to them, you know, reason to, to worry about them dying other than that, like, now he's a king without subjects, you know, and, and how can he rule without having anyone to, you know, rule over? And that's kind of the only uh, remorse I ever see him have towards the end of the film or, or, or anything. And through that, so let me ask you real quick, as we kind of wrap this discussion up, how did you feel about... Uh, Aguirre not really having a character arc or do you feel that he did well so it's kind of interesting because yeah like I said at the top of the show like I don't think that he has I do think that he has a, a character arc but it's not a traditional character arc it's really just more of him growing into what was probably a little bit more latent because he was never put in a position of power to where he could ultimately exercise um, you know his true desires but I think this is a guy that has been 
kind of, again, just using that snake metaphor, you know, he's just, I think he's been counting the days, minutes, hours, years, whatever, until he was put into a position to make a power play. I think that he's probably been scheming for years. He's probably got come up with dozens of scenarios. I think that he's more calculated ahead of time, you know, than kind of maybe the film explores um, because he does become very impetuous. But I think that this is a guy where before this story opens, you know, he's been, again, just waiting in the wings and scheming. So, yeah, um, he. I mean, he's definitely more concerned with get, achieving the power than he ever was with learning what to do with it once yes. he got it. And then that's that we see the result of that where everybody, you know, kind of goes down with the ship more or less. And uh, sounds kind of familiar to American politics. But what are you gonna do? <laughs> um, so, uh yeah, I don't know. I just didn't. I was curious about that as I was watching it. Is that you know usually you see a, a change in a character, but you're right. The change is just down. Yeah, it's a downward <laughs> spiral of of mad. You know, into we keep saying the spiral of madness thing, but yeah, that's kind of the deal. So uh, I loved it. Um, it was kind of a cool throwback too. I I I didn't know until you pointed out to me when we were discussing the movie uh, before I watched it that that uh, Herzog had done a lot of a few documentaries before this, which kind mm-hmm. of explained some of the long sweeping shots of the river and the rainforest setting, you know, your set and scene and getting, you know, kind of showing the time and place where you are. Um, it it kind of did seem like we were shooting a documentary about this more than a narrative film. Uh, also, there was kind of some, you know, long breaks uh, uh, that just kind of felt out of place a little bit that uh, kind of harkened back to, that 70s style of filmmaking. Uh, I know you and I have talked about this before, but that was my, one of my big beefs with like, that just took me out of movies like Bullet or yeah. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where you see uh, Steve McQueen's character just shopping in a grocery store for like five <laughs> minutes, reading the paper and like looking at fruit. Like what is, and like some jazzy little uh, numbers playing over the top of it, uh, some Engelbert Humperdinck or something. And then also with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the bicycle, I'm probably going to get shit for this, but the bicycle scene, uh, <laughs> raindrops keep falling on my head. Like it just seems so out of place. And there was a couple moments like that uh, throughout this. Um, and then also in a lot of ways, it, it kind of seemed like a, a German nihilist version of 20,000 leagues under the sea where we're just <laughs> with this crew on a ship, you know, kind of touring around to different locations and going on different little isolated adventures. And it's like, run away, run away. And then they get back to the boat and we're, you know, we regroup and then it's like the next adventure is, and the salty sea dog leading them through. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think, uh, honestly, Werner Herzog would probably agree with, the description of his film is an existential adventure. I think that's fair. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, man, it is definitely a great week. film. Um, you know, if, uh, if you enjoyed listening to us talk about this film and you haven't seen it, uh, it's definitely one that you should start with if you're a Herzog fan. And on that note, uh, or Ryan, if you're a Peruvian loot loot player uh, <laughs> fan, because there's a lot of Peruvian loot playing in this film. So th- there is a lot of Peruvian pan flute. And Ryan, I think you have a, a confession to make, don't you? Before we uh, cut to commercial. Uh, that this is my f- are you, you alluding that this is my first Werner Herzog that's, film. That's exactly what I'm alluding. This is Ryan yeah, is a guy know, who like digs film. Okay. Like when you talk about somebody who's like more of like a mainstream film consumer and you watch Marvel movies and romantic comedies and stuff, like I'm not going to expect you to like Werner Herzog, but dude, you have seen some obscure ass films. You're very I familiar. Have. We went to film school together. Like I, like I, it shocked me to know that this was your first Werner Herzog film. Well, Cause he's a prolific so, and that's filmmaker. Why, 
that's pre- that's precisely why I signed up with you to do this podcast and to help you co-host uh, some episodes. Is is uh, I was really looking forward to diving in when you showed me the list of films we're in store for. Uh, that's really what sold me on it more than anything is just that I get to watch a lot of these films that have been on my list. And then you asked me to contribute some films as well, which I did. And mm-hmm. I was equally surprised at some of the films that you hadn't seen. So there. So I'll get to rub <laughs> this in uh, to you in future episodes and say, Jason, how did you not see Secret of Nim, man? That was crazy Don Bluth psychedelic childhood yeah. memories. But uh, anyway, we'll get to all that later. I love this film. Thank you uh, for introducing me to it now i gotta go watch Fitzcarraldo, which will not be a part of this podcast but i'm gonna watch it for myself anyway hey Werner herzog's the man it's it, it's on the list too man so uh well hopefully it'll come up but hey, oh is it oh yeah no it's on the list it's for sure there yeah not wow. enough not okay, enough well, people have seen it maybe maybe i'll try to rig the wait. maybe i'll try to rig the selection process we'll talk to you That's guys fair. more about that after the uh after the break here thanks for hanging out with us and uh we'll be back later to we'll talk be right about back adaptation. with adaptation from the incomparable mind of Ashton McCauley comes a novel people are hailing as an instant classic. Whiteout, a Nick Fentner adventure. Nick Fentner has two defining characteristics. He is both a profound drunk and a damn good monster hunter. In Whiteout, Nick's skills are put to the test as he is tasked with searching the mountains of the Himalayas for the lost gates of Shangri-La. Unfortunately for Nick, His arch-nemesis Manchester also has his sights set on the gates and the hefty reward that goes with it. The two are pitted in a race to the top of the mountains, a race made all the more troublesome by a yeti that has been terrorising the lands. Featuring death-defying action and a hilarious wit, Whiteout by Ashton McCauley is the next great adventure in American fiction. Find Whiteout today in e-book, hardcover and paperback versions Online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature. Do I have an original thought in my head? My bald head? Maybe if I were happier, my hair wouldn't be falling out. Life is short. I need to make the most of it. Today's the first day of the rest of my life. I'm a walking cliche. I really need to go to the doctor, have my leg checked. There's something wrong. A bump. The dentist called again. I'm way overdue. If I stopped putting things off, I would be happier. All I do is sit on my fat ass. If my ass wasn't fat, I would be happier. I wouldn't have to wear these shirts with the tails out all the time. Like that's fooling anyone. Fat ass. I should start jogging again. Five miles a day. Really do it this time. Maybe rock climbing. I need to turn my life around. What do I need to do? I need to fall in love. I need to have a girlfriend. I need to read more, improve myself. What if I learned Russian or something, or took up an instrument? I could speak Chinese. I'd be the screenwriter who speaks Chinese and plays the oboe. That would be cool. I should get my hair cut short. Stop trying to fool myself and everyone else and think I have a full head of hair. How pathetic is that? Just be real, confident. Isn't that what women are attracted to? Men don't have to be attractive. But that's not true, especially these days. Almost as much pressure on men as there is on women these days. Why should I be made to feel I have to apologize for my existence? Maybe it's my brain chemistry. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. Bad chemistry. All my problems and anxiety can be reduced to a chemical imbalance or some kind of misfiring synapses. I need to get help for that. But I'll still be ugly, though. Nothing's going to change that. That was the opening clip of Adaptation. Literally the first minute and a half of the movie. Uh, It's just that voiceover playing up against a black screen. 
And, uh, I mean, I feel like <laughs> does a pretty good job right off the bat of letting you know thematically what you're in for. Uh, Ryan, why don't so, you uh, talk to us a little bit about Adaptation. Adaptation, uh, filmed in 2002, directed by Spike Jones. Spike Jones got his start as a music video director, came at us with Being John Malkovich. This is his follow-up. Um, written by Charlie Kaufman. Uh, this is an original comedy uh, that seamlessly blends fictional characters and situations with the lives of real people. Obsessive orchid hunter John LaRoche, played by Chris Cooper. New York journalist uh, Susan Orlean, played by Meryl Streep. I mean, this is loaded with actors. Uh, Hollywood screenwriter Charlie Kaufman, played by Cage. And his twin brother Donald, also played by Cage. Uh, as Charlie struggles to adapt to Orlean's best-selling book, The Orchid Thief, he writes himself into his own movie. The various stories crash into one another, exploding into a wildly imaginative film adaptation, the year's most talked about movie. Uh, I'm going to negate that, actually, because this 2002 was loaded with big films, and we yeah. can cover that in just a bit. But uh, yeah, this that's why I kind of, I was when you told me we were going to be watching adaptation, I had seen this film. Uh, I wasn't sure if this was like obscure enough to be on our list or whatever, yeah. but uh, I think this movie just got buried because as much as I mean, I think it was up for Oscars and oh, uh, totally, for all yeah. the Chris Chris uh, Cooper actually won and all this and right as well he should have that guy yeah, is a he's... tour de force. Is there anything <laughs> I mean, that guy can't is, though, do? Right, like he's I mean just from awesome yeah everything. from Varsity Blues all the way. I mean everything that guy does is just like the cheesiest teen comedy he could just make so good yeah he's the most watchable part of everything so um yeah i don't know man i i love this movie uh i've forgotten how much i love it there are scenes like you totally um forget that nick cage is not in fact two people yeah there are scenes yeah, where he's playing totally. against himself perfectly and cage is full cage in this he's absolutely full nick cage and uh but he's doing it against himself so you get double cage yeah insanity and i loved it and he's playing charlie kaufman this is like a very meta situation yeah where he's like this is written about a situation that that's written about a situation yeah this is a this is right? a this, this is a movie about a screenwriter who is struggling to adapt a book writing a screenplay about a screenwriter who's struggling to adapt a book like this yeah. film, this film is almost a documentary in the way for, right. you know, the first two thirds of the film or three quarters of the film. Like the, the it's all just Charlie documenting his process of struggling to write this movie and adapt this book. And it's not until, you know, the third act, which we'll get into later in the meta behind all of that stuff that, you know, he really just sort of makes stuff up. Um, so, yeah, it's. There's there's a huge meta quality where, you know, once again, Charlie Kaufman is both the screenwriter of the actual screenplay and there is the protagonist, Charlie Kaufman, being played by Nicolas Cage and his made up twin brother, Donald, also being played by Nick Cage. Hopefully you've seen it because it makes a lot more sense if you have. If you haven't, you're probably <laughs> going to get a little lost on this conversation. Um, Just go but, watch uh, it. But yeah, and so, but I mean, that's really ultimately what makes this movie so interesting is the way that the screenplay is constantly doubling back on itself and referring to itself. So like there's things that happen early on that don't really make much sense. Like they don't drive the story forward you kind of wonder why it's there and it's not until later well, that you realize back and forth like, between like 
Meryl Streep and Chris <clears throat> Cooper doing their thing and yeah. the Florida Everglades. And or like even like that very opening shot where there's the montage of, you know, the earth starting and, you know, the dinosaurs yeah. go extinct and blah, blah, blah. And like, it doesn't really make sense until, you know, halfway through the film when Charlie, the protagonist of the movie, gets to the point where he writes that scene and you realize that, oh, he was... You know, when he started off, he wanted to show the arc of the flower, and so he wanted to show it from, like, the creation of Earth. But, like, it being the second scene in the movie, like, it really doesn't make much sense, but it sets up the sort of meta qualities that are going to show up later. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's uh, there are several opportunities just like that, I think, throughout the film that allow Spike Jones to kind of flexes music video visual stylings that he got to do all through the 90s. You look at some of his his work uh, with various uh, artists like the Beastie Boys or Daft Punk or, you know, some of these other uh, great music. I mean, I was a big fan of Spike Jones all through the 90s. Music videos were, I mean, if, uh, if you negate the obvious, uh, music videos were kind of my influence to um, you know, thinking visually and creatively in short film medium where you could tell a story very succinctly, you could be super creative, you could be out there and obscure in three or four minutes and make something super memorable. Uh, didn't I think Spike Jones even uh, brought us like Weezer videos like Buddy Holly, right? Yeah. From Happy Days. Yeah, and all absolutely. That. Yeah. He, he was also, he was uh, if you remember that Fat Boy Slim video that was the dance troupe just dancing in front of that theater. Oh, yeah, yeah, praise you. Yeah, he was the leader of the dance troupe. Yeah, that's right, uh, that's right. And then and we he also did, uh, got to see him in Three Kings. He did Weapon of Choice with Chris with Chris Walken. Oh, yeah, he directed that, and then he also acted in Three Kings, the, the 1999 movie from David O. Russell with Clooney oh, and Ice right. Cube. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he's been all over the place. Man, yeah. I need to go back and watch He's got that. Something... Maybe you put that one on the list. That, that Dude, that's such a good one. I love that movie. It's been a while since I've seen it. But yeah, but he's got a ton of... I mean, he's another guy, you know, who's got like 70-something to 100-something directorial credits on IMDb. Um, but, you know, he just... That's because he did a crap ton of music videos. But only a couple handfuls of uh, feature films. He's actually... So... Yeah, I counted. He's only got four feature films. So he did Being John yeah. Malkovich first, then followed it up with Adaptation, a uh, handful of years later did Where the Wild Things Are, and then a few years later did Her. And those are the yep. only four movies that he's done. Yeah, all four uh, pretty solid films. Very though. much I can't so. can't really complain I, about any, I, I'll watch any one of those ones. I wasn't a huge fan of Where the Wild Things Are. Um, I don't know. Like, it was okay. It was a fun romp. Eh. It wasn't a bad film. It wasn't bad, no. It just wasn't his best film. Correct. Um, so yeah, so, uh, and, and kind of, you know, there is also something earlier on that happens in adaptation to get us back to that, um, where it's like, I think it's like the third scene or something like that. It's the one where he's talking to the studio exec and she's, you know, he's sitting there sweating and he's all, you know, anxious and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, it's funny because one of the things he says, you know, is she's like, well, you know, we want this to be a Hollywood movie. And he goes on his big, I don't want this to be a Hollywood movie. I don't want it to be, you know, this, that, the other. And one of the things that he says is he says, I don't want this to be, you know, some movie there where we take the orchid flower and 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 turn it into poppies and and make a film about, you know, drug running or something. Like that's he actually <laughs> says that. And for everybody for everybody watching who has seen the movie, like we know that that's exactly where this movie goes. Um, and that's <laughs> right. that's actually going to be a statement on the nature of film itself. Um, and the nature of story itself, of which I think is kind of the crux. Like, this is a really defeatist film at the end of the day. Like, hopefully over the course of this discussion, like, I can demonstrate that this is ultimately a movie about failing. 
Like he does ultimately succeed in his goal, um, but he he fails in like pursuit of the way that he wants to achieve this goal because the only right. way the only way that he's able to finish his screenplay that he's been resisting for so long is to give in to the bullshit Hollywood tropes like is to let Donald Kaufman into his life and into his screenplay and it's only by embracing those things that he's rejected for the first two thirds to three quarters of the movie that he's able to finish his screenplay and so it's actually it's actually really rather tragic when you think about it because this guy had to sacrifice basically all of his morals and values with regard to his art to get it done. And I think that goes overlooked a lot of times. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so you got uh, Nick Cage that's uh, as, as Charlie Kaufman mm-hmm. uh, playing the, the artistic integrity side of Charlie Kaufman, and then you've got him playing Donald his twin brother, uh, who's the uh, Hollywood tropes, you know, kind of represents all the uh, expectations of Hollywood for a big blockbuster follow-up. So yeah, that very I paint think that by that the kind of represented like play writing. Yeah, yeah. So you're coming off of being John Malkovich, and every you know you 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 get all this attention and you're doing all this big stuff, and everybody uh, wants you to just do that again or do whatever successful. Yeah, like or, oh, and crazy Charlie Kaufman, man. Here. Like I think even his uh, I think right. even his agent like he reflects that in a moment because his agent's like you're crazy Charlie Kaufman, played like, by no, Ron but, Livingston, right? Yeah, and he's like he's like no one can do a crazy There's so many story people like you. Movie. And he's like I just didn't want to do that this time. I just wanted to just want to be authentic to Flowers and to Susan. He's just trying to write. He was trying to write a screenplay about flowers. And yeah, he couldn't figure out how to make that interesting uh yeah no shit and uh, <laughs> meanwhile donald coffins uh, his twin brother um is and so uh, all the while this is playing against the backdrop of charlie kaufman played by cage on set of being john malkovich right yeah so they're like he keeps visiting the set and john malkovich is there and uh you know all the, the whole cast of being john malkovich is there and the, his agent is already expecting the follow-up screenplay so he's trying to write that and be on set for john malkovich and the pressure is again and we'll talk about this momentarily but this is uh i, I i'd like a counter on this uh in the corner of our podcast about how many times I've said this phrase, but this really is another descent into madness uh, in a way. And what Nick Cage ends up doing uh, by the end of the film, uh, he becomes obsessed with Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper's relationship um, and follows them around the Florida Everglades, spies on them having sex, ends up getting his twin brother murdered. I mean, this is just absolute bonkers. Again, another (laughs) descent into madness. So I'm coming out of, I mean, we're in 2020. I don't know when this is going to get released, but what I can say is we're in 2020. Uh, I've done 12 weeks uh, unemployment quarantine. um, And I myself have been on my own little descent into madness. And then you subject (laughs) me to these two movies. Jason, we have got to get some happier films on the list (laughs) in the next episode. You're going to lose me on this one. Dude, do you even art, bro? Come on, dude. Happy? Are you kidding me? You want to put happy and yeah. artistry in the same sentence, in the I same know. You're phrasing? You're just capitalizing on my uh, my internal descent into madness. Dude, so, yeah, dude have another you, one for the counter. Have you paid attention to artists at all in your 30-something years on Earth? We're not happy people. I'll, They're not happy people. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what I want to pay attention to. Did you see, uh, I believe it was Chris Cooper's uh, fascination with uh, mirrors? And he has a copy of Mirror World magazine, October 88. I want this magazine. I want to frame it and I'll put it in my office. 
<laughs> that's funny. I didn't notice that. Do you do you, do you think that's kind of just like because it's like sort of like a reinforcing his narcissism? Because he is a hugely narcissistic character. I mean, he's always he is absolutely a narcissist. Always character. the smartest guy in the room. He you know and like and the funny thing is none of it's deserved. You know, like he thinks he's super smart. You know, when he's first poaching the wildlife with the Navajos and like dude still ends up in court. You know, like. He, you know, is convinced he's going to do, you know, find the orchid. He doesn't like everything he tries to do. He fails. And yet he just continues to unwaveringly believe in his own abilities, despite what the evidence would show. I love his little diatribe, his own monologue about uh, being done with fish. Yeah, that was great. I'm fucking done. He was, like, he was all about I, fish. Fish was his life. He ran an aquarium. The whole bit. He's like, one day. Fish. <laughs> Just done with it. Just fucking done with fish. Yeah. <laughs> I won't even go to the ocean. And I fucking love the ocean. And I won't step one fucking foot in the ocean. I renounce fish. I love it. Yeah, he really did. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, the other cool thing. The other cool thing I noticed, uh, I don't know if you picked up on this, but, uh, you know, you talked a lot about the sound design. We talked about Popol Vuh uh, for Aguirre. Uh, did you know Carter Burwell did the music for this, who does all the Coen Brothers movies? Like, all, pretty much every single Coen Brothers movie, which kind of added to the quirkiness, I think, of this film. Wow, that makes sense. Yeah, I was actually going to do you one step further and say, I have no idea who that is, but you beat me to the explanation. Um, yeah, yeah. See, so he does all the Coen Brothers movies, like, all, literally all the way back to Blood Simple. Oh, uh, which crazy! I believe is also on the list. I was like, us, "Isn't that but, the uh, Isn't that the guy that does the drums for Foo Fighters?" Like, no. All the way up to uh, All the way up to Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I mean, this guy's covered all the Coen's bases, Hudsucker Proxy, everything. So uh, their films feel kind of quirky and and you know otherworldly almost. And and I think this film kind of falls into that. And I I really credit Carter Burwell for for giving us that and bringing us there a little bit. Nice, dude. Nice. Yeah, I mean, there's some really interesting sound going on there, especially, you know, once we do kind of get to that third act and um, Donald Kaufman comes into play and then Spike Jones and everyone else just gets to play around with all of these tropes and, you know, the heartfelt music and the swelling strings and, you know, just all of these little cheesy, you know, cliched trope moments. Um, you know, they get to really have a lot of fun with that later on in the film. Um, let's talk about uh, well, we don't really need to talk about it, but I do have a little sort of interesting factoid uh, that you may or may not have recognized. So, uh, you know the scene where um, it's uh, sort of earlier on and it introduces Susan when she's at home and she's having dinner with her husband and their dinner guests? Do you remember that scene? Yes. Do you, you happen to know who her husband was in that scene? I don't remember. Well, you may not know, but it was one Mr. Curtis Hansen. Responsible for bringing us L.A. Confidential, among many others. Really? Yeah. So they just totally cast him in there, probably just because, I don't know, they were friends or something. Oh. But yeah, that's totally Curtis Hanson yeah, yeah. plays her husband there. Um, but they yeah. Had, uh, some meeting together. Yeah. And yeah. then the other funny thing about that um, scene is that, you know, she basically like slinks off to the bathroom and she kind of has this voiceover monologue about how she wants to desire something as strongly as John desired the orchids. Um and, you know, there's at this point, it's like there's so much voiceover in this film. And I thought it was there really is. And I thought it was funny because, you know, we've studied screenwriting and obviously Charlie Kaufman has like you. You don't need to to be a screenwriter to know that like voiceover is traditionally looked down upon as like a screenwriting device. Right. Like uh, and then, you know, Robert McKee says that later on. So it's kind of funny to me that at this point, Charlie is still trying to resist tropes and. But yet we still have a ton of voiceover. 
So right, it was, which is later passed off as a trope by his writing. Prof- like, so he gets talked into going to a seminar, right, to go like get writing tips to help him finish his script. His brother's like, "You got to listen to this guy." And uh, so Charlie goes to listen to this guy, and this guy just basically shits all over everything Charlie Kaufman's been trying to do. <laughs> and it also shits all over the movie up to this point. Yeah. That, uh, I don't know, man. This movie... So And then there's also a scene... Because um, the movie itself is kind of a, an Ouroboros, where, and uh, um, uh, Donald, the twin who succumbs to all the tropes and embraces all the writing tropes and ends up becoming more successful than Charlie in the film, uh, talks about, you know, it's like a snake eating its tail and going around and and Charlie's uh, like, you mean an Ouroboros? And he's like, I don't know what that is, but you know, like a... (laughs) So the whole movie is so self-referential and making fun of itself and not afraid to have fun. So even though it's kind of a downer movie or a bit of a descent into madness, uh, it is kind of a romp and, and there's a lot of comedy and humor in this as well. Yeah, there is. And you know what else there's a lot of, Ryan? Masturbation. Wow. This is, uh, I think this is the most masturbation heavy 120 minutes that you cannot currently find on Pornhub. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like at one point I was like, they should have just a counter, right? Like, like, I don't know if you saw that South Park episode where there's like the (laughs) shit counter that just dings every time. Like someone says shit, like just every time Charlie masturbates, it goes ding, like right off in the corner. And there's just a little like closed fist or something graphic. Like, I think we get three in the first hour alone. But so this is what I think is really interesting about those scenes though, is, is, is they actually do end up telling us a ton about both Charlie Kaufman, the screenwriter, and then the protagonist, Charlie Kaufman, the screenwriter. Um, this is a masturbates a lot. Uh, this is a, (laughs) this is, this is a man that is equally obsessed, not only with finishing a screenplay, but also with, women just he is obsessed with the idea of being in a relationship with a woman who he loves and who loves him back and he's so desperate for it that the three separate masturbation scenes that we get all involve three different women and so i think uh yeah so it's really funny because like the first one is there's that waitress um uh at the at the cafe and, you know, pretty young waitress and, you know, she gets him some coffee and, you know, she has a little exchange with him and she's polite to him and kind to him. And you get and just right off the bat, just her, you know, smiling and talking to him briefly, like is enough for him to fall in love with her to the point that he has this fantasy about taking her to the flower expo that he's got to go to for research the following week. And as he fantasizes about taking her to the flower expo, like she ends up taking him behind the building and finding this field and they end up making love. Um, But what's really funny is that there's actually a lot that this scene tells us about Charlie's um, psychology, because even in his fantasies, like he is not the one that is driving this relationship forward. He's not the one who's making a move on her, you know? So even in his fantasies, like the women of his fantasies are always the ones taking charge and they're always the ones guiding him along. And so, you know, you kind of get this sense of like Charlie's in this headspace where he's depending on everybody else to, you know, kind of carry him forward with regard to his screenplay and these women because, you know, he's just feels so inadequate that there's no reality in his head 
where he can do these things on his own. And I thought that was just a really interesting look at that. Yeah, no, I definitely, you know, even with his brother and all of that, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And so, uh, I think, uh, I think later on the next time it's, uh, he, he, he fantasizes about, um, uh, he fantasizes about, uh, the agent is the second masturbation scene. He had, uh, the agent that he met with initially at the beginning, um, and the funny thing about that one too is so like, let's say that it's like, you know, a minute long, minute and a half long scene. I would say that roughly 80% of that scene is her reading his script and commenting on how brilliant it is and how brilliant he is as a screenwriter. And then there's like a brief, like second and a half of sex between the two of them before he like comes to and wake up. Ah, no pun intended. <laughs> um, right. But this, uh, is t- this is Tilda Swinton. Yeah. Yeah. The Tilda Swinton character. Exactly. Oh yeah. Tilda Swinton's in this movie too judy greer is in this movie yeah she played the waitress in the first in the first scene that we talked about yeah so um so it's just funny because i mean even in the even in his fantasy the second time like he's more fantasizing about finishing his screenplay at the end of the day and he's almost he's almost getting off to the idea of you know finishing his screenplay you know more so than just you know having sex with this woman or whatever um and then i think the the third time is with susan orlean And so, you know, again, in each of these instances, it's just him fantasizing about these women that he feels like if he just had them in his life, they would be the key and the answer to everything, whether it's his own self-loathing, whether it's completing his screenplay. Um, You know, he very clearly is like obsessed with the idea of these women. And then dovetailing from that is the fact that he's clearly sexually repressed, you know, and I think that... We a lot of these these scenes that we're just talking about right now, um, again, you know, in in addition to revealing, um, you know, his inner desires is just this is a guy that's also super sexually pent up and, and repressed and like he really really needs needs a woman in his life right now to be able to move forward and he knows that and we know that but we also kind of know that there's no reality where he could ever get in a relationship like who's you know and we see that in the violinist character that you know tries to give him an opportunity at the beginning of the movie to develop a relationship with her, but he can't even bring himself to like lean in and give her a kiss. Um, you know, when he drops her off and makes up this thing, like, Oh, I told, you know, I, I totally come in, but just, uh, Oh, I got so much work with my screenplay and like, but, oh, but if I didn't have work, I would totally come in. And it's like, dude, like you're not 16 anymore. You're like a 50 year old man, bro. Like, come on. No, no, he's, he gets his, gets in his own way quite a bit through this film. And it's, uh, you, you kind of feel bad for him. I don't really feel like, again, um, this is another movie where do you feel, I mean, he doesn't really go through his character arc until the very, very end of the film when he just kind of succumbs to what everyone is asking him to do throughout the entire film. And he's vehemently against all of it. And he feels like he's being asked to compromise his art or compromise this or that. And, and, uh, so, but it's not till the end of the film that his twin brother kind of gets him to come out of his shell a little bit and they get into these hijinks. Uh, the whole thing kind of goes into this madcap caper down in the Florida Everglades. Uh, so he's writing uh, the book or the, the, excuse me, the screenplay about uh, the book, The Orchid Thief, written by Meryl Streep's character. And uh, she is, uh, has fallen in love at this point with Chris Cooper's character and is following him around the Everglades looking for the orchid, uh, this ghost orchid that uh, he is uh, 
right? He's using uh, the orchids to get drugs out of, correct? Um, yeah, well, earlier point. Yeah, so and she, he introduces Meryl Streep to the drug that's coming out of this orchid. He originally comes off as saying he's, you know, saving the flowers, endangered species, blah blah blah. But what he's really doing is harvesting this drug for, uh, you know, profit. Is that right? Did I understand that? Right? Yeah, that is. So, but well, and let's so let's back up a quick minute, okay? Because I think that you know when you say that like, you know, they're doing all this drug cultivating and stuff like. Yes and no, because part of part part of part of that whole third act is that viewed through a certain lens, like none of that really ultimately takes place kind of in a way, because like it does. But it's only in Donald and Charlie's reality, not the reality that Charlie sets out on initially. Um, So let's back up a minute to uh, the scene where Charlie does end up going to the Robert McKee um, lecture. So Robert McKee is actually a real-life screenwriting teacher, Um, but I actually have his book story that is featured more than once in this uh, in this movie. Um, You know, he's he's very famous out here in Los Angeles. What we see is there's a certain point where Donald says, "Look, I went to Robert McKee's seminar. I learned so much about screenwriting. Like you're struggling, Charlie. Like you really should give him a shot. You know, he's not a hack like you think he is. He actually knows a lot about story and structure and blah blah blah. And he helped me out so much. And like you really should just go. And like the whole time, Charlie re- like refuses. Like no, no, no. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Finally, he breaks down because he just can't get himself to do it. And actually, what?" drives him to do that is i don't know if you remember this but there's a moment where he goes to he decides that he needs to go see susan in new york uh, because he needs to understand her so that he can like appropriately capture her personality whatever it is he's looking for to incorporate in the screenplay to accurately represent her book and he actually travels to new york goes up the elevator of the building to the new yorker offices elevators open up he's too afraid to step through the doors so he just lets them close and the elevator goes up, comes back down. Coincidentally, the doors open at the New Yorker. Susan walks in. So now it's just the two of them in this elevator going down 26 floors. And the entire time, Charlie cannot bring himself to utter so much as a peep to get her attention. And this dude just flew from Los Angeles to New York specifically to have a conversation with her. Like, that's how... <laughs> right repressed and just damaged this dude is man but he but he does find the courage to go stalk her right and (laughs) the florida everglades well and so that's get his brother killed yeah and so that's what's really interesting so so the next scene is actually where he does uh go and sit in for the audience of the robert mckee story lecture you know everyone stands in applause when he takes the stage and charlie's just sitting there looking miserable and we get this vo thing and then the, the the McKee character admonishes screenwriters for using VO as there's VO going right on right at that moment. Um, Robert McKee, played by Brian Cox, by the way, excellent performance. But uh, I actually have a cl- love Brian Cox. Yeah, he's great, man. And I actually do have a uh, a clip of uh, Brian Cox. Um, it's about just a couple minutes, and uh, it'll give you a strong sense of what his character is. You know, the hot tempered, take no crap, like don't waste my time kind of guy. Um, let's go ahead and listen here real quick. You cannot have a protagonist without desire. It doesn't make any sense. Any fucking sense. You follow? Good. Anyone else? Yes. Sir, what if the writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, 
where people don't change. They don't have any epiphanies. They struggle and are frustrated and nothing is resolved. More reflection of the real world. The real world? Yes, sir. The real fucking world. First of all, you write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. Secondly, nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? People are murdered every day. There's genocide, war, corruption. Every fucking day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every fucking day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love. People lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find that stuff in life, then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. And why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? I don't have any use for it. I don't have any bloody use for it. Okay, thanks. So funny thing, uh, I remember uh, when the movie came out, they actually had talked to Robert McKee's daughter or his wife or something like that. Um, just because, you know, some people may consider it something of an unflattering performance. I actually don't think it is. I think it's very flattering to Robert McKee. Um, but like his, you know, his daughter was like, yeah, nope, that's very accurate representation of him. Like that's totally the guy that he is. Um, so, you know, definitely a guy who's, <laughs> but the funny thing is, so, so, so Robert McKee is something of a, at least a minor celebrity, right? Like fair to say he's at least a minor celebrity. Charlie mm. Kaufman, the character in the movie, actually works up the nerve to go and talk to Robert McKee after his screenplay. And so mm -hmm. I think that, again, this is really reinforcing that notion of it's not that Charlie is specifically like agoraphobic where he's just terrified of people in general. Like he's definitely timid, but he's terrified specifically of women because even though there's this this guy who's a minor celebrity and, and you know, he's crowded around as the, the seminar is getting out, you know, Charlie's willing to like fight through the crowd and push through people, which normally he would just find too offensive to ever consider and actually stops Robert McKee and says, hey, can you know, I'm struggling. Can we can you help me out with this? Can we go have a conversation? And Robert's like, yeah, sure. Buy me a drink. Right. So I thought it was really interesting that he, he can't even you know, look women in the eye for the most part, but he can stop a minor celebrity and help him have him help him out with the screenplay. Well, yeah, I mean, his his uh, his insecurities um, kind of go through his head uh, over and over again throughout the film where he talks about his thinning hair, his increasing waistline. And, you know, it's always about his looks, uh, how he's seen by women and in his love life. Uh, it's really a direct, you know, uh, layer of insecurity based on his love life or rejection from women or whatever. And the, the real amazing thing is he pulls women like he gets dates. He <laughs> is going out with Judy Greer, who's beautiful. He's, 
you know, uh, well, no, he doesn't. Like, he doesn't actually go. He doesn't actually go out with her because if you remember, like, well, he, so he has that whole fantasy, and then like the next week he shows back up to the cafe, and he's like, and it was actually funny because he has a moment where he reminds me of like that Jerry Maguire kid because he's like, did you know that orchids grow on the ground? Did you know that orchids can weigh seven pounds? Did you know that like the apple right. orchid blah blah blah? And she's like, wow, that is fascinating. Like almost it freaks her out. Him like well, I guess that was my point. And, it's just that he gets in his own way. He has opportunities to get women. I guess is what I was. Yeah. Yeah, like he he puts himself he sets himself up for success and then just falls flat on his face over and over again. That also seemed like a uh, really extreme reaction from Judy Greer because he basically was just like, hey, so there's this uh, flower expo next week. And immediately her face drops like and it's it's in like Long Beach. It's like local. It's not even like he's saying, like, come away with me to Ibiza. He's like, hey, there's a flower expo like an hour up the road. And not only is she like so offended, but she goes and talks to her coworker or manager and like they kind of look over their shoulder at him like as if he had just said something like lewd or like crass. And it was like the guy just the guy just very gently insinuated that maybe you <laughs> might want to go with him to a flower and you just like made it out like he sexually assaulted you or something like and I don't know if that's just <laughs> the way that Charlie thinks that women respond to him. I don't know if that was based on something real like it was just it's a very strong reaction for what was ultimately I was a very about innocuous that. If he was... invitation. I was wondering if he shoehorned in real life experiences. Oh, 100%. Or based on 100%. Yeah. Like I said, like like two thirds to three quarters of this movie is 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 a documentary, right? Like filtered through his okay. own pen, so to speak. But I think That's that so much wonderful. of this is probably happened. Also, if there's that much masturbation in the movie, imagine how much there was in real life, right? <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't have written yeah. all those to, into his book. Like, well, and it, he screenplay. He follows this up with. Uh, uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, um, right? Which is about uh, uh, you know sexual repression and the and the uh, hidden spy agenda and this whole yeah. thing. And then he goes uh, with Sam Rockwell, right? Yes, the ever charming Sam does, Rockwell. Uh, yeah, and then he does uh, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, which we all know how that goes. So yeah, this guy is not someone that has a good relationship with with women or sex <laughs> at this point. I don't think <laughs> like. Yeah, no, yeah, right. I think, I think, I mean, and look. You did start off writing the Dana Carvey show, which if you've seen any of that, <laughs> that's uh, kind of twisted in its own right. So. Definitely. Well, you know, and I think that, you know, it's the idea of a writer being socially awkward and bad with women and sexually repressed, like, oh my God, this story's never been told before. An awkward writer. <laughs> it's a trope all itself. Right, like, it's so voiceover. it makes sense, you know, I think it's consistent. I think that, um. So, but yeah, but I think just the whole nature of this film constantly doubling back on himself. So this is what's interesting is, um, you know, so pretty much where the third act kicks off is right after that, um, right after the, the lecture and, uh, he, he's still, he's, he's still in New York, um, or he goes back to New York rather and calls Donald and he's like, Donald, I want you to come out to New York with me. I want you to help me finish my screenplay. And this is the exact moment where this is this is this is literally Charlie Kaufman, the screenwriter existing outside of the film, saying, I cannot film. I cannot finish my movie. I cannot finish my screenplay with these very strict guidelines that I've set for myself. The only way I'm ever going to finish this is by succumbing to the very tropes that I've been resisting for this entire movie. And so he literally as a character in the movie, as Charlie Kaufman 
the protagonist of Adaptation, he invites his brother Donald, the physical representation and manifestation of all of those tropes that he's been avoiding for so long. He invites him into his hotel. He invites him to help him finish his screenplay. And I feel like that's the real life Charlie Kaufman saying, yes, I succumb. I can't do this. Let me finish this screenplay. I welcome all the tropes. And from that point forward, it's literally just cliche after cliche after cliche. And the interesting thing is when he invites him, Donald ends by asking him to sing along to the turtles. And and he says, come on, bro, sing with me. Come on, bro. Imagine me and you. And he's like holding the tape recorder to him. And I feel like that's Charlie Kaufman's like inner trope being like, Charlie, come on, bro. Like we're in trope mode now. Sing with me, bro. Embrace this, you know? <laughs> and, and so he's like, fine, fine. And so right off the bat, they begin spying on Susan in her house or her apartment. And she, you know, does the she's got the secret flight to go see John in Florida and she's hiding it from her husband. And there's like the whole stakeout thing. And then, you know, Donald finds out that, um, you know, John's got this porn site. And so he goes to look at it and then Susan's on there naked. Right. And so, like, it's just cliche after cliche after cliche. We also get a monologue from Susan where she talks about finding the ghost orchid, finding the ghost orchid rather, um, and ultimately being disappointed. That never happened in real life. Uh, Susan never actually saw the ghost orchid. That was part of the point of the book is um, kind of about, it was about disappointment, but in a less uh, resolved sort of way. Um, And then that's where you talked about earlier. We see that the Navajos uh, have actually started cultivating the, uh, this, this wildlife for opium. And that is why I brought up that scene in the beginning um, where he talks about that, you know, he doesn't want to make this a film where the flowers turn into poppies and ends up you know, being a film about drug running. That's exactly what this is. And becomes. then it totally does that's that. This moment right so, here. And that's his acceptance. And that's why it's such a fatalistic message. He, he had to, he the only way he was able to achieve his goal was by betraying every set of principles that he established for himself. Right, right. Do you think uh, uh, Susan did that? Do you think that that actually happened or is that no. all added in? So so here's the thing. So so all of everything that I've just said right now, everything from this point of the movie forward is 100% made up. None of it happened. John and Susan never fell in love. Charlie never spied on them. They never made the opium. Uh, you know, uh, there's even, there's even something like just to, to reinforce the nonsensical thing. So like John calls Susan and they have this like heart to heart and you know, it's this cheesy music swelling and the dialogue is just that cliche bullshit. Like he's like, you're the only one that understands we, we were meant to be together, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden there's a shot where, uh, Charlie and Donald are tailing the two of them who have just gotten off the airport and are in a van and no joke, the title comes up and it says three years later, but it like it, it proceeds exactly <laughs> from the previous scene. And so I feel like this is yet again another clue, if you will, another statement of like, oh, yeah, this is such bullshit that I'm just going to throw in three years later, even though it's clearly the next day. And I think that all of these sort of little moments are keys to the fact that none of this is real. Um, you know, and, and not only that, but we also see it in the Charlie and Donald character. So like after they do trail them back to his house, 
Um, we see Susan and John and, you know, they're, they're blowing lines of opium and banging and blah, blah, blah. And Donald gets out of the car and says, bro, I'm going to go investigate and see what's going on. And Charlie actually gets out and says, no, bro, this is my responsibility. I got this. And he's the one who goes and investigates. Charlie Kaufman never does that. Like, Charlie Kaufman has very clearly been established as the type of person that is never going to be able to go and do that. And so, again, this is just reiterating the fact, all of this is satire, none of this happened, this is Charlie betraying every single instance of who he is and what he is to finish his movie, and it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. And actually, to reinforce <laughs> this, what I'm going to do is I actually have a clip of the two of them are hiding out in the swamp from John and Susan as they're chasing him with guns. And Charlie is just given the like, I don't want to die, bro, like teary eyed speech. And then there's this tale that uh, they talk about when this girl flirted with Donald when he was younger. Uh, let's go ahead and listen to that real quick. It was this time in high school. I was watching you at the library window. You were talking to Sarah Marsh. Oh, God, I was so in love with her. I know. And and you were flirting with her. And she was being really sweet to you. I remember that. And then when you walked away, she started making fun of you with Kim Kennedy. And it was like they were, they were laughing at me. You didn't know it all? You seemed so happy. I knew. I heard them. Well, how come you were so happy? I love Sarah Charles. It was mine. That love. I owned it. Even Sarah didn't have the right to take it away. I can love whoever I want. you were pathetic. <laughs> that was her business, not mine. You are what you love, not what loves you. And so, you know, this is, again, just Charlie Kaufman playing into every single bullshit sentiment that you know, a traditional drama would do. Like, this is him embracing all of those paint-by-the-numbers aspects of screenwriting. By extension, Spike Jones is embracing all of the paint-by-numbers aspects of storytelling. Um, the, the the musical composer that you just mentioned, forgive me, I already forget his name, um, you know, he's playing with some just really, really cliched type sounds and type music. And so, again, like, in a way, none of this is happening because all of this is just Charlie, the screenwriter in real life, giving in to those lesser instincts and lesser principles that he's been avoiding, thus reiterating sure. the statement that, like, you can't just make a movie about flowers. And yes, you have to follow right. the, you know, Aristotle three-act structure and, you know, the Campbell outline, you know, hero's journey. Um, you know, th that's all of uh, this entire third act is all statements about the validity of these very structured approaches to storytelling, but with the defeatist principles that say, you know, sadly, we do have to adhere to these principles. We can't create anything original, and it's just the way it is. So, did you catch? Um, 
when in in that uh, third act before we wrap this up, uh, did you catch Chris Cooper talking about uh, when he's talking about his porn site? So we find out after after all this, not only is he you know peddling in orchids and all that, but he's uh, on the cutting edge at this point of uh, pornography websites, <laughs> and he he's just all about it. And he mentions uh, about how he's uh, immersed in computers because they won't leave him or die like his exes all have. Yeah. And um, he's just kind of looking at this as as a romantic outlet, more or less, for his loneliness. And I really thought this was interesting to me because uh, a couple movies later, Spike Jones goes and makes her oh, yeah. uh, with Joaquin Phoenix, which is very much a reflection of that same idea, yeah? Yeah, it is. And if I remember correctly, um, Spike Jones, I, I forget, he was in a high-profile relationship with someone. Um, like some actress or something, and I think they had just broken. Sophia up. Coppola. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, so I think they had just broken up around her or something like that. So maybe he, that maybe that's his thing. Maybe he only does movies when he's just like in these emotionally fragile states, and that's just you know he uses that to like <laughs> get past the, you know or something you know. But um, but yeah. So you know, and then the funny thing is, as the story wraps up again, it just at this point we've embraced everything, you know. Uh, when, you know, John goes to shoot Charlie and then at the last minute, some alligators that are in the swamp, uh, you know, just, just, just eat him. And then, you know, Susan's crying and then Charlie gets his moment where he actually stands up to her and puffs out his chest. And I think he like calls her like a lonely, pathetic old drug addict or something like that. And he's like, so, you know, he gets his, you know, moment where he stands up again, Charlie Kaufman would never do that. And then, you know, to wrap it up, he's alone in his apartment and, you know, he's going to honor his brother's memory who he accidentally killed because as he was driving away, he got in a car crash. Donald flew out the window. He accidentally killed him. Um, and, you know, he's going to honor his memory by using his being Donald's final words to finish his being Charlie's screenplay, which, again, is just is such a like, you know, screenwriting 101 sort of approach to finishing that story and then they you know he ends up meeting the violinist again for coffee and it's this super easy back and forth convo where you know earlier on in the film it was just all self-loathing and you know they they have a nice back and forth and they're laughing and he says that he he actually does gather the courage to reach in and kiss her and says that he loves her and she loves him too and then you know we get that final shot where it's the time lapse of the flowers uh, just set up against that turtle song, you know, really just really just embracing, you know, the concept of the, uh, you know, aural theme and visual theme and many of the different concepts that have come up in the sort of Robert McKee approach to structured storytelling. So, yeah, man, so I, I think it. it's a I think I think it's a really great film. That's about all I got for this one. It obviously says a lot about the nature of storytelling itself. Um, again, I do think that um, traditionally the exact nature of the ending does kind of go overlooked just from the standpoint of the fact that, um, again, you know, this is, this, this is ultimately not really a satisfactory conclusion. I mean, if the first two thirds to three quarters of the film is documentary, then the last third to quarter is fantasy and it's, it's two completely separate films, you know? And again, just that, that very fatalistic message of, you know, originality, is elusive and you know you you have to adhere to these certain principles and guidelines and as much as the artist within you is going to want to push the medium forward and try something new there are just built-in audience expectations when it comes to the nature of storytelling uh in in the media or rather in the film format um and you're just always going to have to succumb to those 
That's what he's saying. So, yeah, great film. Uh, very well made. Very impressive screenplay. Um, nominated for a bunch of awards. Uh, would have loved to have seen Charlie Kaufman win an award for that. I think it's one of the more remarkable screenplays that we're ever going to see, um, you know, with the whole meta commentary and everything else that goes along with it. So we are going to take one last quick break. And when we come back, we are going to hit you guys up with a, sort of a little bit of a compare and contrast feature uh, that we're going to use to finish up uh, each and every episode. So when we come back, we will compare Aguirre the Wrath of God to Adaptation. We'll be right back. Have you ever wished to understand the profound chaos that is the machinations of Mazaosa in the most desires? Then join me, Werner Herzog, and uh, my best friend Klaus Kinski for Aguirre's uh, existential jungle cruise uh, located deep in the heart of the Peruvian rainforest. Together we will sail down a poorly constructed raft that uh, falls well short of uh, modern safety requirements, laying witness to the treacherous deceit of the river that uh, will demonstrate itself as a madness incarnate. Along the way we will be attacked uh, most likely by natives, uh, spit upon by emperors and would coldly and without mercy um, send a misfortune horse to undoubtedly certain death, all while questioning our own sanity and uh, our assumed uh, perceptions of reality. So join me for a thrilling excursion to the body and mind as we uh, examine the true nature of reality uh, among the harsh backdrop of this interstellar blue marble we call our home. You won't be glad you did, but uh, at least you can begin to come to terms with the... Um, harsh and unforgiving realities of um, the universe's true nature. All right, Ryan. So two absolutely amazing films, man. Like I'm pretty sure that you love both of them just as much as I do. Um, you know, different, different movies, definitely. Um, but also maybe, maybe more similar in certain respects than might seem on the surface, I would argue. So, um, let's go ahead and talk about, uh, with regards to similarities, what were a couple or, you know, one, uh, what did you find similar between these two vastly different experiences? So when you proposed this concept to me, I, I kind of didn't know how to take it or how this would match up. I was like, how am I going to find, uh, similarities between adaptation and Aguirre or some of these weird, obscure films uh dude th these two movies were almost exactly the same thing <laughs> right? just told in a different way in a different time uh 2002 uh you know brought a, a new way of telling the same story but it, it was a descent into madness it was two heroes journeys that of people that got in their own way and eventually you know led down the path of destruction in a way uh to the point where Kaufman loses his twin brother and has to you know ends up in a swamp uh, and all these things, and uh, Aguirre, you know, ends up getting his crew all killed uh, in the same way that uh, Nick Cage gets his brother killed, and, like, I don't know, I just saw so many parallels in this, in the way that these are just both doomed characters from the start, that uh, I will say that Adaptation has a, a little bit of a, an uptick at the end, because, I mean, Charlie Kaufman ends up getting the thing done, and, and all that, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think these are... If you follow both of these heroes' journeys, it's it's very very parallel. Yeah, it was super interesting, and and yeah, I'm equally glad and equally pleased with kind of the way this came out because you know it was kind of you know at first daunting before I had rewatched the films, the idea of like you know again oh how are we gonna do this? But <clears throat> yeah, there's there's just themes that reveal themselves when you kind of are aware and you're you're looking for these things, you know. So I would I'm much like yourself was kind of shocked at 
the nature of the similarities. These were these were two much more similar films than I ever would have assumed right out of the gate. Um, I think the biggest thing about both of them is that ultimately they're both tales of obsession. You know, these are movies about sure. right. a man, and not only are they obsession, but it's it's obsession because they're about two vastly different men who each give themselves almost in their way, equally impossible tasks, you know? That's the thing, like, to a degree, they don't know it, but both of these men have set themselves up for failure by giving themselves goals that are impossible to achieve, whether a matter of resources, whether a matter of, probably more so than anything, their own personality, their own, you know, self-destructive efforts in, uh, in, in, in achievement of that goal or in working toward that goal. But we see two men Impossible, that are singularly but at the same, obsessed. At the, at the same time, though, like both of these guys had ways to hypothetically have a chance at success because yeah. uh, Aguirre had the uh, native tell him where the gold was, and he's like, nothing's over there, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he had the horse to provide meat, sent it in the water. All the things we talked about of like ways he could have changed his fate – uh, that he just blew it up like so much like the cannon in the raft and the eddy like that he just did that over and over and over again and same thing with Charlie Kaufman's character wherein he had uh, opportunities to succeed where he got on the elevator with Susan where he you know had uh, the attention of women he um, his brother obviously who is identi- his identical twin was successful where he was not in these areas that he just set himself up for failure. Uh, even just the way he would mope when he would go to parties where his brother yeah. was the life of the party and ended up with Maggie Gyllenhaal as uh, her character. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I, I just think that was interesting because uh, I thought adaptation gave us a parallel where we saw the direct opposite happening to two identical characters. It wasn't based on the things that Kaufman thought it was. It wasn't his thinning hair because his brother had the same thinning hair and uh, the same afro and everything else. And he was, you know, very successful at at love and life and all the social Mm -hmm. aspects of it Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, Charlie was judging himself upon. And so how can you say that your mirror image was doing all these things, literally played by the same actor, and uh, and yet yet it's physical limitations that's holding you back? No, it can't be. I think it's a lesson to us all. (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely um and i think uh you know on that note like i said you know there's obviously this similarity of just this you know impassioned pursuit nothing's gonna get in my way except that you know both of them do get in their way and so that's yet another thing is that they're both their own worst enemy uh at the end of the day however the ways in which they are both their own worst enemy i think are very different um so for as much as Charlie and Aguirre's, um, you know, arcs and pursuits and goals, you know, may sort of trend in the same direction. How they go about achieving them is actually quite different. I think that the biggest difference between the two of them probably lies in the fact that Aguirre is overconfident and Charlie lacks all confidence at all, you know? So at any given moment, like, like, there's never a moment in the film Aguirre, The Wrath of God, where Aguirre thinks that he is not going to achieve his goal. You know, you kind of touched on that a minute ago. Right. Um, like, there's just, there's no, no I mean, scenario where he's not going to take over the land. And conversely, for Charlie, like, at a, at a certain point, there's no scenario where he is going to finish his screenplay, you know? So they, they do differ right. in those respects, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, I think that the other thing is just the way that they're willing to use people, you know, at the end of the day. Um, I think that Charlie is somebody who is 
never going to knowingly at least uh, manipulate people, bend them to his will, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, part of it is he's just not going to have the, you know, the gall to do that even. I don't think he's going to have the ability to engage people to, you know, sort of rally on his behalf. Um, but even if he did, you know, like he's never going to be the guy that's, you know, beaten up on the natives or someone that he hired, you know, like he's never going to hire a, a screenplay, a writing assistant, and then just put everything on him and berate him. Like, like, the difference between them is that Charlie definitely puts the weight of the world, arguably, but certainly the weight of his world on his shoulders and nobody else's, whereas Aguirre has this sort of entitlement, right? Like, well, it's his destiny to take over the world, and it's, you know, everybody should be willing to assist him in achievement of this goal, um, because again, like I'm destined, like God has said that it's my right to rule right. the world. And He's so a you're supposed to help me. Like I, I yep. should be upset that you're not willing to, you know, carry this for me or something like that. Um, so yeah, but, the, but, and then to sort of just, you know, tie it off here at the end, um, in sort of, you know, a way that they're both sort of similar and different is that I would say that at the end of the day, both Aguirre and Charlie, are very principled individuals. Now, you can argue with the nature of those principles, but they are definitely men that see the world through a, a certain lens in a certain way. Uh, they believe that, you know, mankind and people, etc., based on, you know, their status in society, other other means, um, you know, do have, are almost destined. You know, there is a point to life for everybody. And, you know, for Charlie, it's his point to create screenplays because he never questions whether he should be a writer. Like, there's never any doubt that he is a writer. He just doesn't have the confidence to be able to carry out his vision for what this particular project looks like. But it's never like, oh, I'm a... Yeah, I'm a, it's a pretty specific problem. Yeah, he's never like, it's I just should just give block. it up completely, you know? Um, yeah. yeah, and conversely, you know, Aguirre uh, sees the world a certain way. And again, you know, people have this role to play and this is my role. And so even though both men are different in the way that they approach life, uh, again, I do think they're both principled men and they were never going to deviate from their character. Um, and I think that kind of also dovetails into why there's not necessarily like a quite as defined of a character arc as there might be in, you know, another film. So yeah, man. So uh, I think that that's a pretty, I think it's a pretty good summation of both films. Um, it's been interesting. Not a bad, uh, not a bad first run. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's been. Yeah, I mean, this was easier to do you. than I thought. Yeah, it was kind of daunting to set out on this uh, task, but uh, yeah, had some free time, watched some movies, and they were very similar uh, little tales. And I really, really enjoyed both of these movies. Definitely. So. Uh, Thanks for having me on, man. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, I'll try to join you as often as I can for these uh, to co-host and uh, watch some watch some films. I'm really excited about the list. Yeah. So um, let's and let's speaking actually, of which, do you want to talk a little bit about next next episode's films? Right there with you, buddy. Absolutely. So uh, let's explain a little bit about the selection process for these films. Um, so you know, because we want to sort of make connections that aren't necessarily on the surface. Um, we want to challenge ourselves to compare and contrast vastly different films, right? So we actually have a master list of all of these films that sort of qualify as, you know, what we said at the top of the show, right? Lesser known films, indie films, art films, silent films, 
basically anything that exists sort of outside of the mainstream. Or maybe it was mainstream at one point, but maybe the mainstream shifted over the years. Something like Adaptation that was maybe sort of, you know, got a fair amount of attention when it came out, but it was forgotten. All of these films go on a master list, okay? And what we're going to do is at the end of every show, we're going to go ahead, you know, we're going to take the two films that we just watched, we're going to remove them from the list, and we now have our brand new list. All of the films are alphabetically ordered and assigned a number. What we're going to do is at the end of every show, we're going to go here to our random number generator, thanks to Google, and we are going to randomly select the next two films on our list, and who knows what they're going to be? Uh, again, Ryan, you know, we may be setting ourselves up for a really daunting challenge here. Um, I mean, we've got just, you know, films that are all over the place on this list. So, I mean, right off the bat, you've got, you know, stuff like some, some current stuff like A Cure for Wellness. We've got some foreign films, Amores Pedos. We've got old school gangster movies like White Heat. Uh, we've got weird indie stuff, you know, Mandy. Uh, we've got The Wages of Fear. Vampire, Yojimbo, I mean, it's all over the place, right? Um, and, and of course, Fitzcarraldo, which we talked about earlier. Um, so, again, we have no idea what type of films are the two films that are going to be paired together. We may get a Kurosawa film up against an Ari Aster film. And, you know, we just have to find uh, the similarities between them. So, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and select our next two films. So, cross them fingers, Ryan. Let's see what we got. Do we have like a, a drum roll effect or something? Maybe I can put like a drum roll I effect don't. in like edit and like post or something like that. Just if you're hearing it, if you're if you're hearing it right now, this was totally put in post. All right, number thirty-two. Let's refer to <laughs> Oh man, I get thirty-two Felix the Cat. Wow, that'll be interesting. Now I I don't I know this about one up. you. This one's on YouTube for free. You could just stream this one for free, uh, but yeah, adult. Uh, so one of the earliest adult animation. Yeah, yeah. The 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 the. I don't know. Do you call it a classic? A Harry Crumb classic? Like, I mean, it's one of those movies. I think everybody knows about, but like nobody's actually seen it. I know that's definitely the case for me. Yeah, I mean, this is a. Uh, I think this is classic Bashi, right? This is uh the, the same guy that gave us the Lord of the Rings animation, and uh, I thought I, I thought this know, was he, he would do I, a lot of. I thought it was Harry Crumb. I'm not even no, saying you're wrong. I'm not so. even saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I totally thought it was Harry Crumb, but it sounds like you know for sure. Uh yeah, I believe this is this is a uh, classic boxy. All right. Well, we're definitely going to have to confirm right now. And I was going to say we're going to have to confirm that info and uh we'll let you know uh, but let's go ahead and select the second film here. So pairing up with Felix the Cat for episode 2. We got number 79 and as we consult our list wow okay so ryan this is gonna we're gonna be flexing our muscles here man so uh we are gonna be comparing one felix the cat to swiss army man okay yeah which uh nice. is actually available on netflix uh i mean i don't think you can say for free but it's included with your monthly subscription cost and i think Everybody either has Netflix or has their friends or mom or dad's uh, password. So go ahead and watch Swiss Army Man, Felix the Cat. Get ready for next week to join us. Uh, what do you know about Swiss yeah, Army I'm Man? Yeah, I'm going to have to Honestly, do some research really, on these. Uh... I can't really say that I know too much about Swiss Army Man other than that's the Daniel Radcliffe, Paul Dano film. Oh, did uh, you never see this one? No, I never saw this one. Is it, you, you have? 
Oh, you were in for a treat, my friend. <laughs> no, dude, it's been on my, uh, I mean, it's been oh, on my oh, list oh, forever. Oh, 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 uh, also, also, it, l- let's go ahead and specify. We're talking about Fritz the cat, not Felix the cat. Yeah, that's that's not what's on here. You have Felix the cat on here, my friend, which was a, which was a Ryan Siegel entry. Well, I apologize, man. Oh, my God, you're Fe- killing uh, me, bro. Fritz, you're killing me. Fritz the cat. Fritz the Fritz cat. The Felix cat. the cat's from, like, the 40s. That's a TV no, show. This is uh, that was oh. that was serialized. No this joke, This is the Ralph Bakshi adult <laughs> animation. Fritz the cat. Oh yeah, no, dude. We're totally talking like Felix, the little smartass cat. Yeah, that's Felix, right? Right. So this is the Fritz adult the version cat. of that. Fritz the cat. This is a this is quite a right. professional operation that we got going on here, by the way. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I we'll like that we're at this, broadcasting everybody. I apologize. this to everybody. Just like, hey, <laughs> hey guys, this. it's our first time doing this. Could you tell? Look, it's a cat. Just watch a cat movie. Watch Garfield. <laughs> watch Garfield. Yeah, Bill but Vier's, Murray. A, Vier's uh, an animated cat. We're going to go ahead and we're going to allow that for the next episode. Yeah. Off the beaten path. We're going Garfield 2 uh, <laughs> in the streets, whatever it was. <laughs> you know, uh, in the sheets. Lasagna. In the streets. In the it, whatever sheets. yeah um, i mean the boxy version would be in the sheets but yeah <laughs> this is uh fritz the cat uh okay. this is important uh from 1972 this is a ralph boxy movie this is in fact a adult animated film do not watch this with your kids and um yeah we're gonna be comparing this to uh what was the other one again <laughs> swiss army man swiss army man <laughs> with uh harry potter himself Nailed yep. it. All right. Well, that's cool. what we got. That's what we got on. Well, tap you're in for, for a treat week. on on both of these. I'm really, really excited about these picks, and uh, I don't think they're too long, too. I think we'll be able to knock these out and get back to uh, to everybody real quick. But um... so right now we do have the Twitter account going. You can follow and engage with us at Esoterica Cinema, and then uh, if you're a little old school, you can also send us an email. That's at Esoterica Cinema at gmail.com. Do hit us up. We love to talk film. We love to hear from you about how you like the show. Maybe you have an opinion about something we said or that we talked about. Uh, maybe you just ate a really great muffin and you need someone to tell. Go ahead. Hit us up. Whatever the reason. We love to hear from you. And uh, who knows, Ryan, maybe we can even uh, get them to give us some suggestions for this list here. Yeah, yeah. Send, send us some recommendations for the list. Not Felix the Cat, though, because that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody uh, wants to watch that. That's not obscure. Yeah, so, and then just to remind you guys all, too, that um, uh, any films that do make the list will have to be available for streaming. So I know both Ryan and I have some films that are very dear to us that just are not available. Uh, I really, really wanted to get Bellatar's Burkmeister Harmonies on here, and it's just not available for anybody. So, you know, we're not going to put that on you. But, um, yeah, you can check out Fritz the Cat and Swiss Army Man online. And then we will be back next episode to discuss and compare those two films. So thanks so much for hanging out with us. We will catch you next time on Esoterica Cinema. From the visionary minds at Aberrant Literature comes a short fiction collection unlike any other. Aberrant Tales. Bursting at the seams with stories of creativity, excitement and wonder. Aberrant Tales takes the very best in modern science fiction, fantasy and horror and weaves them into one thrilling eclectic package. Featuring the works of Ashton McCauley, M.T. Roberts, Daniel Curland, and Jason Peters. Aberrant Tales is available today in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions. Online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.